Excuse me. Oh, yes, sir. I guess this may sound silly, but how do they manage that? How do they manage what? Uh, in there, in the glass case. Oh, <laughs> well, I couldn't say exactly. I know they use magnifying glasses, little tiny tools, single hair brushes, things like that. But mostly they keep at the job until they get things right. But how do they get the girl to move? Uh, transistors? How's that? The girl playing the piano. We're going to go for a joyride. You've just made a wrong turn heading south onto strange highways. Enter death's waiting room, if you dare. And welcome to Strange Highways. I am Paul. Hey guys, it's Terry here. And uh, yeah, we're back with another episode here. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed our um, little folksy aside with Jezbel. Uh, like there was a lot of fun to be had that episode, but I'm I'm glad that we're kind of kind of past that. Other than yeah. other than I now forever have I have this favorite bit. That cat was a witch. I, I will never let that go. I don't know why I love that. Because the sentence doesn't make any sense. I mean, well, I guess it makes grammatical sense, but it's like, that's a lot to unpack. Like, what's that even mean? And then we now know it was a leopard that just poofed in the smoke. And that's how you know it was a witch. I just feel like that was like Salem witch trial kind of stuff. Like, they're like, I don't understand it. It's a witch. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, that woman talked back to me. She's full of the devil. Burner. <laughs> yeah. There know? we go. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, th- this episode we're getting into is. Uh, season four episode seven miniature uh number one song was hey paula by paul and paula we talked about that last week number one film how the west was won i meant to write down a bigger description of it but i know it's a big important western one i've not seen um but do you have something else different is it episode eight episode eight you're right episode eight eight, it is a uh, yes, I did that. I, no, no, no. It's funny because I did that twice already, like okay. with my notes. So uh, yes, this is season four, episode eight, miniature. Um, thanks, thanks for Terry for pointing out that I made a factual error. Which you know, if you guys are keeping score at home, you can just check off that bingo box right now because that should be the free square of the Strange Highways bingo. Like Paul makes a mistake. Yeah, no, I did that in my initial note taking, and then the first time I was writing down like or doing audio clips, I kept labeling everything episode seven. So. Yes, it's episode eight. If we were doing like a visual cast or hero of some sort, it would be the freak square would usually be, is Terry wearing a hat? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then and then did Paul make a mistake? So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I thought you were going to correct me about the number one film. So that was how the West was won. Um, but yeah, episode eight. We're on episode eight. Sorry about that. <laughs> Just no, 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 no. You confused me. No, that's good. Because everyone been like, oh, you're wrong about that. I'm like, yep. <laughs> and I'd probably what would happen is tonight I would save it again as like season four episode seven and upload it so you'd see two episode sevens that would be stupid so yes anyway uh, 
day and date, uh, February 21st, 1963. Uh, so the one thing I wrote down here, this is not a fun fact, but it's just how time marches on and we're getting closer to an inevitable uh, date here in 1963. Uh, Klein Sporting Goods of Chicago received a shipment of Mandlechner Carano, uh, Mandlicher Carano uh, rifles from uh, Crescent Firearms Company in New York, including rifle number C2766, which would be used to kill John F. Kennedy. So dark, but that's the reality of what's going on. We're like, we're like slowly walking towards that moment. Yeah. And we had talked about one of these like uh, little facts um, that have been leading up to the assassination as well. And like episode, I don't know, four of this. It season. wasn't seven. I can yeah, tell you that. It wasn't seven, but it wasn't yeah, seven. it was like, we're slowly progressing towards that. And I, it, it's, as sad as it is, I, I find it interesting that we are slowly finding out more facts with every, every Yeah, episode. it's just it's like it's like um, the other things you'll see too. A lot of Wikipedia has a lot of space race stuff. Yeah. And you see a lot of that. And there's also a lot of grumblings about the beginnings of the Vietnam War and how much was not known by the public at that time. So granted, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty and history is twenty twenty when you look back, but it's like it's still I you know the, the reality of this, someone at a sporting goods store was opening a box of product and they did not know that they were holding the rifle that would shoot a president, you know, and that's messed up, you know? So yeah. Fun. Yeah. There's your, that's your happy thought. There you go. So, <laughs> uh, I don't have any weird things like, you know, a young lady in this episode one day grew up to be a, a exotic dancer that would shoot somebody. I don't have that, but you know, yeah, but, I, I have other facts for the day, but honestly, with all the other depressing things that are going on in the world right now, I honestly don't want to talk about any of them <laughs> because this honestly was a very depressing date. Like, okay, uh, there was not well, anything. Fine. Good. What else? What else you got? What, what, what else oh, you got for geez. me? Yeah, let's uh, do it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. So, Central Committee of the Soviet. Com- uh, I, I can't even do it. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Cut that. <laughs> no, no, it's it's fine. You, you, uh, the Russian words. Let me see. Let me see if I can do it. Yeah, I'm gonna give you my notes. <laughs> uh, which one is this here? Uh, Operation Plowshare. No. Um, the Central Committee of the Soviet Communist Party sent a formal letter to the Chinese Gov- Communist Party Central Committee proposing a summit between the two in order to settle the differences. Okay, so that's you know you don't want them you know agreeing with each other. Operation Plowshare. A, uh, a nuclear test blast of three kilotons took place at the Nevada test site. In the U.S., that you know, that's messed up. A large earthquake destroyed some people in Libya. That's bad. Uh, Telstar One, which was the first privately owned satellite, was launched into space. I actually was became the first satellite to be destroyed just by radiation because they didn't plan for yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of sad things that actually happened. To yeah, that I, so I'm like, I don't even want to talk about them. Like I'm, yeah. every time I'm looking at those notes, like outside of the fact that I'm not very good at words, uh, <laughs> I'm just like, no, these are all really depressing. Yeah. So yeah, there you go. Uh, so good thing that the, the world has moved on and we're a much better spot today on this day and date of uh, March 12th, 2020. Mm. <laughs> you, you never want to date these episodes because we're talking about the TV series. It's 50 years old, but hey, there you go. Maybe five, six years from now, you're going to listen to this and be like, what happened that day? And then Google it. A lot's happened today. <laughs> hey, bright note. When you listen to this episode, it's more than likely going to be Friday the 13th. That's true. Yeah. So there's a bright spot. That's a bright spot. We could talk about some guy that was killing campers. That's yeah. the, that's bright. Happy. I see that. Yes. I have my Friday the 13th shirt on. Uh, all hey. right. So yeah, let's just get into uh, I, um, cast and crew here. So uh, written by Charles Beaumont, who we've talked about previously this season. Uh, one of the heavy hitters for for uh, the series, directed by Walter Grauman, his only Twilight Zone episode. And I, after watching this, it's kind of a shame. I kind of wanted more from this guy. Like I, I actually, the direction of this episode is quite good. 
Um, he directed, uh, what was it? The 633rd squadron, a world war two film about a fictional squadron in the British RAF. Uh, this is a film that George Lucas would actually, uh, comment and directly reference saying he wanted the trench run of star Wars episode four to be reminiscent of that film. Okay. So the, this guy did a war movie that inspired George Lucas to actually make, you know, space combat like dynamic. So I think that's kind of awesome. That's really uh, interesting. Like uh, that. He also, Grauman also directed a number of made for TV films, including uh, an Aaron Spelling produced 1970 supernatural horror film called uh, Crowhaven uh, Farm. I've never heard of this. I guess it got pretty good reviews for being a made for TV horror film. So that's what I got for we'll him. We'll have to check that out. Oh, 53 episodes of Murder, She Wrote. I had that as there well. There you go. So, yeah. And then, uh, so, uh, do we want to move on to cast? Um, yeah, let's do yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. For cast, we have Robert Duvall, a heavy hitter for me. I really like his material. Yes. Uh, so, um, this was his only episode of Twilight Zone, but uh, he was in, uh, amongst other things, uh, he was in Godfather 1 and 2. Uh, he was in Apocalypse Now, Colors, Falling Down, Phenomenon, John Q. Those are the ones that I know him from. Okay. Uh, he was in a ton of other crap. Which ones do you care for? Um, so, uh, I mean, Falling Down is like my, I mean, I, I've seen him in a few things, obviously, like The Godfather. Yeah. I love Robert Duvall. Um, when you see him, it's just, he's just a good actor. And he, and like, Days of Thunder, he yeah. was like the mechanic in that, like the old mechanic. It's like, he has this kind of just presence that like you can't copy. And I, and I do love him. There was a film I mentioned last week briefly. I don't know if we talked about it while we we're recording or not. The film, the apostle where he plays like, um, like a preacher that, uh, he's, he directed himself in the film and actually got like a best, like, you know, um, uh, best screenplay or best something. He got a Oscar nomination out of that somewhere, but there's just a bit where his, um, his empire is kind of collapsing around him and the feds are showing up and they can't, they're not going to burst into the church as he's preaching. So he does kind of almost like this, uh, like long going, like, um, uh, filibuster speech. And it's like, this is the time where you actually, he's basically preaching for his life. And it's like, you know, he's on the, he's he'll his way out, but he doesn't want to quite get there yet. It's powerful. Um, but yeah, I love him. I'm falling down. Like that's probably the first time when I, when I saw that film at that time, I was a little, I was like in high school, I think. And it's like, that's when the, him and Michael Douglas, like that's when I recognized their performances. And that was not something I was always good at that time of understanding. Like these guys are doing something interesting. Yeah. And yeah, I, I loved him in Falling Down. I, I, he has such a, deli- a line delivery that is just so charismatic. The end, like he just, I, I just think when he's charming, he's charming as hell. Right. And which is interesting because there's a little bit of weird charm in this, but he also plays it so odd on purpose. Like, like aloof yeah. almost yeah. in a sense. Like I, I, I adore him. I, I can't wait to dive more into his catalog. One of the little interesting movies that I didn't even know that he was in. He was in the remake of the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. The the seventies one? Yeah. Nineteen seventy eight. Oh, you know, as much as I know that movie, I don't think I've actually ever seen it. I know that that this is a big admission. It's just a bit role, but I'm like, he was in that too. Like he just he was in so much. Like, just look at his catalog. It's, yeah. It's so funny. And he's still working. He's a little intermittent now. I made, I think I made the comment last week. So mark it on your free card last week that I said he was in um the man who who killed Don Quixote. He's not. That's the Terry Gilliam film that finally got released, but he was attached at one point to be in the film. He was supposed to be Don Quixote. But that film, which I don't know how familiar you are with it, uh, Terry, but uh, this thing was supposed to be made in like 
the late nineties, early two thousands. Okay. And there's a documentary called lost in La Mancha that followed. It was supposed to be like the making of documentary for the film. And you literally see this, this production falling apart in front of Terry Gilliam. And it's like, it is equal parts heartbreaking and hysterical. Like what happens? Like they, they go to this part of France because it's this wonderful, like, like, like painted Vista that's very dry. And they shoot one scene that you see in the film and mm-hmm. the documentary. And then all of a sudden someone's like, is that, is that rain? And then the next thing you see is like just torrential rain in this area that never has rain, like washing film, like uh, camera rigs and everything away. Like, this thing was just, it was doomed, you know, but Duvall was supposed to come in at some point. I had read that, I guess, and I got stuck in my head. So he's not in the finished film now, but you know, again, I was wrong, but I, w- I was wrong, but not by much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that should be my motto for the show. My name is Paul. I'm wrong, but not by much. Uh, yeah. And I can't read, so don't worry about that. <laughs> we have our faults. It's okay. So, okay. A couple other things. I was close, some, some just background knowledge about Robert Duvall. Uh, his mother was a relative of Robert E. Lee. Uh, so like in a member of the Lee family. Uh, so he ended up uh, portraying Robert E. Lee in gods and generals in 2003, which was the prequel to Gettysburg. So I thought that was kind of, kind of interesting. So he actually, uh, in winter of 55 Duvall began studies at the neighborhood playhouse school theater at New York. Um, uh, he ended up like there working with um, like Dustin Hoffman, Gene Hackman, James Kahn. He ended up like living with Dustin Hoffman for a while. Like, so you talk about like these big like actors that would come later, like they all kind of, you know, grew up together in a sense of like professionally. So I thought that was cool. Um, so it was him um, was in Hackman. So it was Hoffman, Hackman and uh, Duvall when they lived together. The, the three of them combined have 19 Academy Award nominations with five wins. Like, that's a, that's crazy. Like I think that's pretty cool. Um, Good friend group. Yeah, that is. Uh, Duvall's screen debut, and this is something I completely forgot about. Though I've seen this film, he was Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird, so I forgot about that. Uh, uh, he was notorious as uh, Lucky Ned Pepper in True Grit, which is the John Wayne western. That's it's a lot of fun. Uh, and also, I just want to mention here where was it? He had a, he had a, a film that he uh, Tender Mercies, I think, where he was supposed to be like a songwriter, uh, and. He uh, wrote some background, like secondary songs for that film, but he didn't write like the big ones, but he sang like the music because uh, he said he, he put in his contract that he was going to sing the songs in the film. Um, he's like, he said, what's the point if you're not going to do your own singing? They're just going to dub somebody else. I mean, there's no point to that. <laughs> like, I just love it. He's like, if I'm going to be in a movie for singing, I'm going to sing. He's a purist. Yeah. So I, Robert Duvall's awesome. Like I, I enjoy him and. Uh, just like last season when we, there was an episode with Robert Redford, it's like, you're just like, really? He's in the twilight zone. It's like, you get that moment of like, well, shit, you know? And both these guys were in the natural together too, you know? So, they were, um, yeah. yeah, like it just, it just, you get these guys on the way up and you see what, what others people saw in them. And yeah. it's just, you know, this is the only time we're going to the twilight zone, celebrate them. And he's still with us. So, you know, watch Robert Duvall films. And if you guys have not watched this episode, uh, please do. This is one that I would say, like, as much as we're going to have fun talking about some of the weird stuff in it, if you if you're just listening to us talk about it, do yourself a favor, just watch it because Duvall's performance is really good in it. And, yeah, and honestly, if you know his film, you would see a different like aspect of his yes. acting yeah. in this. Like, it's it's a departure from what you would typically know. So, and then uh, so as we move on, we have Pert Kelton, uh, that was Mrs. Perks. Parks. Parks. She's Parks. the mother. Yeah. yeah, that was his mom. This was her only appearance in Twilight Zone. Uh, she was in The Music Man. 
that's pretty much the only thing I would know her from. So I have some other notes about her too, because um, she was uh, a young comedian in like uh, the '30s, like um, like a lot of like movies then, like uh, going from like you know like the early talkies, and she was often portraying the leading lady's like wisecracking friend. Mm-hmm. You could hear that in her voice, like yeah. you could just see that. And if you look at her earlier photos, like she she fit that time, like she was she was a bit of a like you know uh, like a little bit of a knockout for being you know like she was cutie, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I you know that not that that's important, but it's like you know. Yeah, you know, you're going to be a wisecracking side, sidekick of these like these comedies. Then they probably you know picked you for a reason. You know, so. yeah, she had that like flapper look. That she personified that look. Of- yeah, she did. Um, she was also the original Alice Cramden in the Honeymooners uh, comedy sketches on the Dumont uh, Television Network's Cavalcade of Stars. So much like The Simpsons. This started off as a brief set of skits before it got spun off to its own show. And then whenever this became a whole thing, uh, I guess uh, they, they made a decision to cast somebody younger to be, uh, you know, to be Alice Cramden. So she was part of the Honeymooners to start, but then was recast. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that's something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just I mean, the Honeymooners is like a very influential. Like, no, I you know, love yeah, no, I, yeah. I actually love the show, so don't. Don't have to convince me. No, I just, I just, you know, <laughs> yeah. So good, good comedy stock. And she, you know, like, I think she's fine here. I think they just gave her uh, one note to hit over and over again. So that was frustrating, but yeah. I think she was fine. Yeah. yeah, I agree. So, and then next we have uh, Barbara Berry. That was uh, Charlie's sister, Myra Russell. Uh, this was her only Twilight's own appearance. And she was in uh, otherwise 37 episodes of uh, Barney Miller. And 93 episodes of Suddenly Susan. <laughs> there you go. That's a 90s uh, sitcom draw. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Brooke Shields. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it wasn't so, a bad show. I, no, I, I, I caught some of that. Yeah. So also, uh, she received her first leading role in a film called One Potato, Two Potato, portraying uh, Julie Cullen Richards, a divorced woman newly remarried to an African-American male, while her ex-husband demands custody rights for their child on the grounds that their child is in danger because they're living with a man of color. Like, that think about that's talk about a progressive. When like, did this come out? I don't have the date for that. I, I should have wrote that down. It's pretty confrontational. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, the film was considered uh, controversial. And was released dealing with racial tensions at the time. She was nominated for an Academy Award. For, like, sorry, the film was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Screenplay. Uh, she did win the Cannes Best Actress Award for her performance there. Uh, in 1997, she voiced uh, Al Alcimini. Alcimini. I'd say. She was the adoptive mother of Hercules in the animated film Hercules. I have not okay. seen that, so the names I'm going to trip over that. That one I was like, I was, Al- I can't Al-Kimini? figure it out. Something maybe, yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't figure it out. No. I was like, I can't put that in the notes because I can't read it. Yeah, uh, she also what was it? Um, she got an Academy Award nomination for Breaking Away in 1979. I think that was the the um, cycling movie. I think Kevin Costner was in that. I could be wrong, um, but yeah, like uh, so, like kind of had like some like important things, you know, so. Uh, and like, you could also get the vibe from her. Like I, I, they gave her some weird character beats in this, but I liked her. I, I, you could tell that she did love her brother and I like, it's just a good comedy timing too. There's some good, there was a, a lot more comedy, like intentional comedy this episode that I was expecting. Yeah. And she carried that part. Uh, yes. She well, did. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into that. So, um, and then next I'm going to mess this, this last name up here, Paul. I'm sorry. So Lenny, uh, wine bit rib. Wine Where rib? is it? Where do I have Matt here? Um, Lenny that, Wine Rib. Yeah, I think you're right. That's, yeah, Wine yeah, Rib. Yeah. So he plays Buddy Russell. That's uh, that's Myra's husband. Uh, again, only episode of Twilight Zone. Um, he did a lot of voice work. You couldn't tell by his voice. Like when you hear him, you're like, that guy sounds like a cartoon character. Oh, he was a lot of cartoon characters. A yeah. lot of them. Yeah. I mean, like it's ridiculous. So he did. Uh, he was on HR Puffin stuff. 
Um, so he was uh, wait until your father gets home. Voltron. Yeah, he did some voices of Voltron. Yeah, yeah. and the the Rambo cartoon. And then this one I had to uh, save because it's my favorite part. There was an animated Adams Family cartoon, like the like like a show. Okay, he was Gomez Adams. I didn't realize that. That yeah. that I can see that. You know, oh, I'm I'm like super excited about that because I've been wanting to check out this cartoon for the longest time because I love the Adams Family. So. Nice. Uh, he was the original voice of Scrappy-Doo. Yeah, um, I So I would strike against that. No, I don't like him now, no. He was Grimace in the original McDonaldland commercials. <laughs> like, I thought that was funny. Uh, one of his, like, characters that was his, that he did the voice for, was Inch High Private Eye. I remember that cartoon. So, yeah, a lot, a lot of uh, animated work. Yeah, it seems like uh, he was like attached to the Hanna Barbera stuff quite a bit. Which you, I saw, get, like, you hear his voice; it's like the, the, he was made for it, you right? Know, perfect, exactly. Yeah. So, and then uh, we have William Wyndham. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays the Doctor Wallman. Doctor Wallman. I don't. I don't even remember his name being mentioned in this. I world, don't but, remember it either. Yeah. yeah. So, Doctor Wallman. Um, he was in one other episode. Uh, five characters in search of an exit. Yes, that's a wonderful episode. He was the major in that, which I, I was like, I thought I recognized him, and I'm like, that's why. Yeah, he was really good in that episode. It was actually like one of my favorites from season three. Yeah, and then uh, some murder she wrote stuff, and then one episode of Star Trek. Yeah, uh, he was uh, in uh, the episode The Doomsday Machine, uh, which is you know one of the more popular ones. But he was also in um, To Kill a Mockingbird. So he was the prosecutor uh, like that was going against like Boo Radley. Oh, like okay. try, well, it gets Atticus Finch. So there you go. Another Kill a Mockingbird uh, uh, connection. Also, the murder she wrote connection because this director probably was like, you need to, you know, uh, be in this, you know. <laughs> so not our last murder she wrote connection either. And I then the believe. connection with Robert Duvall. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Bam. It all comes around. Yeah. So then we uh, get uh, John McLeam. McLeam. There we go. Uh, he was one of the guards. Uh, three other episodes. Uh, the Shelter. The Midnight Sun. And Uncle Simon. Yeah, we haven't gotten Uncle Simon yet. Uh, the Midnight Sun, he actually, he's in, but he's not in. He played a cop that that footage was cut from broadcast, oh. but the footage is still out there. So when they do show that episode, sometimes at festivals, his footage is still there. So I just remember that. I don't know why, but it's like, I was like, yeah, three, three and a half appearances in the Twilight Zone. And, and we'll yeah. get into that, yeah. like with chops and stuff like that, that happened with these episodes. Like there's an interesting fact that we'll get into about this episode. Yeah. Uh, and then he was also in First Blood. Oh, Rambo, okay. First Blood. Yeah. Um, and uh, yes, he was in Star Trek Next Generation for an episode. So. And then uh, Barney Phillips, uh, he was dimel he was the boss of the accounting firm yeah the, whatever whatever it was that that place was the number crunching place he yeah. was the boss you know so uh it's his f- fourth of uh, four twilight zone appearances uh purple testament he was in for uh, like a hot a cup of coffee um will the real martian please stand up he had a significant role in that he's actually one of the more iconic images of the twilight zone where he pulls his uh diner's cap up and you see like he's like a diner worker like working like a grill mm-hmm. and he pulls the cap up and there's a third eye there that's a very iconic image he's like bring like the he's like the cook or whatever and that he's also a thing about machines um like th- this is you know his most substantial role was will the real ple- real martian please stand up and then this one he actually had a couple lines so you know very very recognizable person when i saw him i'm like i know that guy again you know i was like he has two he has two eyes where's that third eye hiding you know <laughs> 
Uh, and so, yeah, not much otherwise. It was in like a show called 12 O'Clock High. So, I mean, not yeah. much. And Johnny Midnight. Oh, thank you. You saved that. I uh, I, did, I missed it. I just I slipped think. that in there. Uh, and then we, uh, we have Claire Griswold. Uh, she plays the doll. I put her next because I feel yeah. like she has somewhat of a significant role here. That's fair. Um, she, the only other thing I got out of this was she was in an episode of Hawaiian Eye, so we got that connection. Not much else I recognized. Yeah, um, that's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah. And then uh, Joan Chambers, uh, she plays Harriet, and this is her only episode. And <laughs> that's it. Like, yeah. again, like we, we're kind of scraping the barrel when it comes to. The next bit of cast here, honestly. Well, no. So, okay. Uh, let me. I'm, I meant to look this up. So, give me one second here. There's something I want to like make you laugh because there's a connection here that uh, I make there's, me laugh. There's oh. a show um, that uh, that I read about previously that sounded really weird, and one of these um, actors was in an episode of this. Uh, let me find if I could type in the name here. Nope. There was my, a lot of shows around this time that just the title alone just makes me laugh. Yeah, there was one that I saw that, that was in the 70s that was like so and so uh like treasurer of like the like um like of something like national treasure. It's like really like you're going to just have a whole show about somebody that works like higher up in the government that makes sure people aren't committing fraud and that's it. I I'm just wondering um, if like around this time that they even had like a a polling audience that they could show like this stuff to and they're like does this look good to you? Like a kind of a test audience because I feel like a lot of these shows just kind of went on the air and then fell off, and that was it. Like, they had 10 episodes, that was it. Well, I mean, you got to consider, too, there was, like, only, like, three or four networks at the time, so they had to try a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, and there was a lot of, like, counter-programming, like, uh, try to compete here. So I'm just trying to find this. Okay, here it is. Okay, so we'll get to what else we have here. We have Chet Stanton as the guide. He's the one in the museum that was doing the vaguely racist stuff with uh, the African masks. Oh, uh, yes. It's the second of two appearances. He was in The Mind and the Matter. Uh, that's all I had for him. Uh, Richard Angorol... Ang- Angorola? He was the, the suitor. The suitor. He was the the bad guy in the in the dollhouse. Uh, only Twilight Zone appearance. Um, he was also in three episodes of the TV series How the West Was Won. So he got work later after because yeah. the movie that was successful. He was also in the film Jeremiah Johnson, which is a interesting western that has. Um, I just mentioned his name earlier. Uh, um, freaking uh, guy from The Natural and uh, Robert Redford. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I, I like that I have selective memory where I'm like, I can remember a name until I need it. And then it is, uh, no. Um, oh, trust me, I'm that yeah. guy too. Uh, Nina Roman was the maid that was also in the dollhouse. Only Twilight Zone appearance. Wasn't one episode of the X-Files. So, um, yeah. Uh, but so Richard Angarola, uh, he was in an episode of a TV show called My Living Doll that only lasted one season. It was from 64, 65. Um, here's the description. Um, actually, I was see. hoping that you would touch on this because yeah. I, I didn't, I, because there's such a large cast. I didn't put all of this. Yeah. Together. This was just, I just, <laughs> we've talked about this before on the show. Rhonda is an extremely sexy young woman living with a womanizing air force shrink, Bob McDonald. What Bob knows and the rest of the world does not know is that Rhoda's real name is AF seven zero nine. And she's actually a sophisticated yet naive robot. Uh, Bob's job is to teach Rhoda how to be a perfect woman and keep her identity secret from the world, especially the lecherous neighbor, Peter. So, um, when the main actor, Bob Cummings, who was like the, the Bob McDonald, the shrink left the series, uh, his character was written out. And then, uh, uh, Peter, the, the, the creepy neighbor was given the duty of taking care of, 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 uh, Rhoda. So yeah, my living doll, like, no, 
uh, but yeah. Um, so this didn't catch on. No, it didn't. It didn't catch on at all. The the only other thing I actually had it got for rebooted him. into a show called Small Wonder later. No, it's, it's oh, not. <laughs> I did have an, uh, a a fun fact for him, and as far as his catalog, he was in Hang 'Em High as well. Oh yeah, I I think I saw that. Um, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of Hang 'Em High. Like yeah. I just. I like Clint Eastwood, so I, I do haven't too. seen it. Yeah, um, but. So uh, that's that was his first movie. I think he made the first western he made after the Dollars trilogy. Okay, and uh, if you notice, his production company is called Malprezo. I think that's what he called his production company. Um, yeah, uh, that's, I think um, that's right. This was the first film he produced like himself. Okay, and so he he made a western. He directed Hang 'Em High, if I remember right, and it's like he got so annoyed with. Um, uh, Leone's like very meticulous and detailed directing style and how like patient he was. Okay. That he's like, I don't want to do that. So you watch hang him high. You're like, you took a lot from him, but you're also kind of like, yeah. So it's like this weird, like it's trying to be like a spaghetti Western sometimes, but it's a little, the it's a little weird messed up. I, I don't know. It's like, you're trying to serve two mashes here, like making like the movie that it's not so hard to make, but you also want to make it look pretty. It's, 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 it's tonally. It's a little odd. But it's Clint Eastwood, so that's nice. Um, has Dennis Hopper in it too, uh, which uh, I know we talked about previously. Connection yeah. as well. Oh, there uh, we go. But yeah, anyway, that's enough Western talk here. Um, so yeah, that's our cast and crew. Do you have anything else? No, that's it. All right, let's just get on to uh, Serling here. To the average person, a museum is a place of knowledge, a place of beauty and truth and wonder. Some people come to study, others to contemplate, others to look for the sheer joy of looking. Charlie Parks has his own reasons. He comes to the museum to get away from the world. It isn't really the 60-cent cafeteria meal that has drawn him here every day. It's the fact that here in these strange, cool halls, he can be alone for a little while, really and truly alone. Anyway, that's how it was before he got lost and wandered in to the Twilight Zone. All right, so Terry, take it away. First of all, I want to wander into a cafeteria that gives me 60-cent meals. Well, the... <laughs> Do you really want a sixty cent meal now? Well, nowadays, like, I, I guess. Mean, like no, it's like <laughs> the quality. I mean, at that there's time. already a dollar value menu at most like fast food restaurants, and even then, you're like, ah, I don't know, like you know. <laughs> uh, I, all right, good point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be fair though, I mean, you know, I I have um, I have subsisted I've, I've subsisted off of dollar menu stuff before, so you know. I don't know. But. I, I get burritos from a gas station. So I, that's my <laughs> breakfast usually. So I'm like, it's a rough morning. I'm getting a burrito from Speedway. There you go. Yeah. So, anyway, so um, we open up to an office area. Uh, there's a, like eight workers and they're processing paperwork and stuff like that. Yeah, it's an office pool. Like everybody has like an adding machine. Um, I want to note though, my second time watching it, I realized that the camera's it's framed it's far enough away where it looks like and it's tilted downward because it's it's a crane shot that pushes in on Charlie. I'm sorry, I just took this away from you. Uh but it, it feels like you're looking in a box yeah. at him. And it's like it took me watching it twice to be like, "Oh god, like this guy actually the director knows what he's doing." And it's like it's very you get it. And it was a really really nice shot. Yeah, I, I'm sure it's just like people being funneled into the system and processing work, and like he's just a number. Like I, yeah. I you get that, especially from the way that they talk about the boss and everything like that. Well, I'm just talking like you're looking down into it, like he was looking into the diorama later of the house. Like you have that angle of like you're you're viewing his world oh. from a little bit of a distance. And it's a downward angle on him and his typing pool. And he's just one figure among many. 
that's you know that's where I, like that's what I thought was neat uh, the second time I watched it. Okay, I get I get I get more of what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Um. So yeah, we open up on that scene, and um, it it rings to bell to a lunchtime, and everybody's like already in their process. They're getting up. They're getting their coats on and everything like that, and they start to like get yeah. out the door. Charlie's supposed it's, to work. It's the process, yeah. right? And um, we see Charlie. He's still. You know, doing his work and trying to get like a little bit of like extra numbers in, maybe, um, because especially when you see these two dudes come over and they're like, "What are you doing, man?" Did you notice how like those guys look? Make us look bad. They, I couldn't tell. Like they looked almost identical. I was like, "Who who cast these guys?" It's like, are these just like? Are, it would have been funny if everybody in the office looked exactly the same except for him. But yeah. like the two guys look like they're almost twins. Like I, I was like, I was hoping in the IMDb it would have been Goon One, Goon Two. Yeah, you know? like yeah, Office Goon. Like he's like, "Hey Charlie, what you're not you you don't want to go out to lunch? Like you're just trying to make us all look bad." It's like. I don't think he's trying to make you look bad, you know, but they give him grief because he's just, he's like, I want to get done with this. They're like, no, you have to go. And it's like, all right, guess I have to go to the museum for the 60s lunch that I've heard so much about. And, yeah. and you can tell by Charlie's like demeanor that he just doesn't even want to talk to these two guys. Like it, they're, they're just, it, just, it didn't occur to him that his working was going to be a bother to them. Exactly. Yeah. So like, what do you mean? Whatever. Yeah. Like, so then he, uh, you know, he go. He leaves there. Uh, the like the boss comes out and looks at him for a second. You you know whatever. It's hinted that he wants to talk to him, but you know it doesn't happen then. Charlie goes to the museum, and, I, and I'm glad that Surly explained that there was a sixty cent lunch because he comes into the museum and he goes and makes a beeline for the cafeteria. It's like cafeteria is closed. I'm like, who would go to a museum cafeteria for lunch? And that's all they're going to go for. That right. felt weird to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been to I've been to museums that I didn't honestly think about going to their cafeteria until the more recent visit to a museum in our area but i'm like hey i didn't yeah, even think about it as a kid you, you don't know? <laughs> you don't leave you don't leave your place to work now but like you know i am kind of hungry i'm i'm gonna go to that museum cafeteria yeah, you're going <laughs> to make a d's you're going to taco bell speedway just, for a burrito yeah right it just it just feels weird to me be like you know I need to, you know, I should probably go, I should probably go to the Natural History Museum and have lunch. Like, I mean, that'd be cool for like a day thing, but like, that, that's not my destination. Like, you know, you know what probably have, might have a good cafeteria? The library. Like, like what? Possibly, like, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, well, you know, it's like, I have to like put into a time and place. Like, I, I honestly think that because of his timeline and what had had transpired a little bit later, he probably had an hour lunch. Because he's going off site for his lunch as well, so no matter what, so we we go to the museum. He gets turned away from the cafeteria, and he tries to go upstairs. And in that moment, he gets part like gets pulled into a part of like a tour. Like, yeah, it's like it's like a salmon or a gaggle uh, salmon gaggle. I don't, that's not the right thing to say of, of white women like that are all like taking yeah. this tour and he's trying that's one of the first comedy bits like he's trying to go up against the flow and then he just eventually just turns down and starts walking with them yeah. it's like it was kind of funny I actually like, <laughs> yeah it, it's like he had no he had he had no way to get out of it he's yeah. just like alright well I guess I'm going down the steps and I'm going to be part of this tour and um, the tour guide which is a guard as well um, he's he's giving like all the information about like uh, different artifacts that are in the exhibits and that and it it it's some group of I don't even remember what the name of the group was. It was like it was like a woman's like gathering, like of some sort. I can't remember. Well, just the whole thing. Like even though what he 
he wasn't saying anything that was overtly racist in terms of like holding up like these tribal masks of like all these different tribes of Africa. Yeah. But he was basically implying like they're savages, unlike you ladies. And they're all like, hee, hee, hee. it's like, it was just like this thing of like, Oh, this is like uh tourism at the museum of like, Oh, I'm glad that we're more civilized than these people. Yeah. But Charlie saw through that and left. Like, like he, he doesn't have time for racism. Like, well, and <laughs> he has an hour lunch. And he had 60 cents burned in his pocket. He needed to get out of there. He was just like looking for the easiest way out, too. Yeah. He's like, oh, God, just let, let me get the heck out of here. And he finally gets his route out. And he goes into a room that he seems to have not seen before. And yeah, it was like an Egyptian area, but yeah. then not. Like, it was you like clearly you set up like the Chekhov's gun of the sarcophagus for later, Mm -hmm. but you see like a lot of Egyptian artifacts then off to the right side. Like, so this is a part of the museum. He like, it looks like he was going to a specific uh, exhibit upstairs that he couldn't because of the tour. So you're right. I I don't think he's ever seen this before. And the way he reacts to everything, like he ends up seeing, it's not a diorama. It is a dollhouse. It's a miniature doll. Like, well, dollhouses are miniature, I guess, but it it has like a cutaway, like on the side. So you see, the four like it's you know the four rooms and whatever but i i say diorama that's not the right way to describe it but it's just a dollhouse that has a like a plastic or a glass wall that you can look in and see it's like a recreation of a specific time period like a split house kind yeah of kind, yeah 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 um it's like anytime you've ever taken like you know a he-man castle gray hole gray skull play set and just or snake mountain and open it up <laughs> like he's you know and you just see the insides that's what it feels like to me um but not he-man that that would have been a weirder episode if he's like, you know, what's going on in that uh, you know, Snake Mountain? <laughs> the doll can, has can you, so many muscles. It's like, can you, it's like, hey guard, do you hear that tiny? <laughs> like, no, I don't know how they do that. You know, like um, anyway. So please. So and it's like of a Victorian age, mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, you know he sees the doll and he sees like a. Uh, what is that? A harpsichord? It's a harpsichord. I mean, yeah. it has to be right. The sound's yeah, coming the sound out of it. Coming out of it. But when he when he looks in and sees the the miniature, he doesn't see a doll. He sees a woman, right? Like a, a, a woman that's size it's relative a, to the house. Yeah. For all case, for all intents and purposes, it's a very well done uh, imagery for him, for the viewer. Like like it's yeah. a very like detailed display. Yeah. And uh, so he's looking at it and he's looking really closely at the display and it looks lifelike from the view. And, uh, you know, he he digs it and then he starts to turn away and all of a sudden he starts to hear music, harpsichord music. And he's like, the melody is very sweet. And we heard a little bit about, we heard a little bit of it with um, Serling's intro and he kind of goes back over and sees her playing and he, you know, he calls the guard over. He's like, how do they do that? Yeah. And it's like, what are you talking about? He's like, the music. And he's basically like, they don't play music. It's just a wooden doll. You know, like there's a little, they even say after the Sterling intro, it's like, here's a plaque that just basically says, hey, everybody, this is a wooden house with the wooden woman. You're an idiot. That the plaque doesn't say that. But, uh, but as Charlie, you know, is like trying to figure like this out and it's kind of like, you know, befuddled because he hears the music as he's talking to the guard, you know, it stops. You know, that's when we get Serling's intro, like like in in and out of that. I forget how that weaves in exactly, but that's when we get him introducing this and we find out about the 60 cent lunch and it's for Serling's kind of truncated intros for this season. It's actually quite a good one. I think it sets the stage for Charlie quite well. Yeah, I I believe that as well. And so we see Charlie 
He leaves. Well, where do you think Sterling would show up in this this I, episode? Honestly, I think he would have been in the dollhouse. <laughs> That's yeah. what I'm saying. It would have been amazing. Like I was thinking about this to... the entire time. I was like, Paul's going to ask me. I know. And I'm like, he's going to be on like the steps. He's going to be sitting on the steps of See, the dollhouse. Either in the dollhouse or he comes out of the sarcophagus at the beginning, like smoking a cigarette, you know, and then been like, you know. But we see the smoke coming <laughs> from the... the... <laughs> yeah. It's coming out of the nose of the sarcophagus first. <laughs> Or or the cigarettes in the lips of the sarcophagus, and you see it being puffed on. And he just opens it and he just walks out like that would have been amazing. Nice, but yeah, either one of those would have been acceptable. Certainly, interest for this episode. God, I wish we could just recreate those. I wish I wish I was a better artist because I would love to do like little flash like, animations yes. of like you know how that should have happened with Sterling intros. Like, did you ever see the the Night of the Living Dead where the the college students like edited in picture or uh, edited in um, like different um, film? to it they, they recreated scenes oh and did it. no I, I know that there's like these fan projects where someone oh i just saw one recently i didn't actually watch it but people they submit they they requested everybody to do like two seconds of shrek in oh, like God. different like some people did some live animation some did it like actual like hand-drawn or like stop motion so they actually recreated all of shrek in like two second segments people have done this with star wars too so like i've seen projects like that where people insert their own stuff like yeah. Yeah, I just, but there's a web series called like how it should have ended or whatever. And it's like a YouTube series, I guess. And they do like kind of like these, like their own art style, but they always say, this is how it should have ended. That's, this uh, is perfect. I yeah, think like, that's we how, could, how Sterling should have shown up. We you know? could, we, with our technology, we can make this happen. Yeah. Just, we don't have the ability. <laughs> yes. So uh, later on, we see uh, Charlie back at his place. Um, and, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. No, well, the, I'm the sorry. plaque. No, the, the, no, the plaque's important to point out because the guard tells him that the um, that this is a recreation of a house that was donated by these people, whoever they were. Uh, that's supposed to be like this Victorian house, and that um, the figure of the woman is actually carved from a piece of a banister in that house. So it's a single piece of wood. He t- the guard tells Charlie this directly. Like it's it's all wood. I don't know what you see. Dismissing like, everything yeah. that he had just said, yeah. and um, so he. Oh, he said it must have been one of those kids with the pocket radio. He's like, as they do, like, like I'm like, as those, mis- those mischievous kids with those pocket radios, you know, technology. Yeah. All right. So until so we see Charlie gets back to work, it's a little bit later than probably what a normal lunchtime would be. It's yeah, like he's one thirty ish or whatever. He is late. Uh, everybody's already working, and then they all stop. Yeah, they all look at him. Yeah, it was it, it was it was a weird beat, but it's like, man, I don't think an office would do that. Uh, I don't know, but he finds the note. It's from his boss. He wants to he wants to see him in his office, so he slowly goes into the office and it's like, the boss. This is where I'm kind of pissed because oh, this is the first first situation in this episode where people are being very unreasonable to Charlie as a person. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. like. His demeanor has been nothing but professional that you would have expected out of a normal atmosphere at work now. So do we correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and I, I, I could be get your bingo cards ready. Didn't the boss say you've been working for us for four years? Did yes. he say that? Okay. Yeah. He said four years. Um, so it's like you have a, you have a worker that does his job, doesn't want to take lunch because he wants to get extra work done. And this is like an accounting firm where wouldn't you want like the most like, boring straight-laced people that all they want to do is work exactly but that's not the conversation that happens 
Not and at I, all. I was confused. Uh, not confused is the right thing. I get that this sets the story more in motion because, again, this is not the first time where there's this recurring theme of the world pushing on Charlie what they want Charlie to be or what they expect him to be. And so you get that theming over and over again. But this was like, that's not the way that would work today. It would be you know, like this guy would be like a, like um, like a assistant manager and not wanting to be one. You hell, know? hell yeah. yeah. Like the, the company uh, guidelines would push this dude to be that person. Like, like I, I could see the office being mad at him because he doesn't have a personality and doesn't interact, but because he does such good work product and right. puts so much out that he keeps raising the bar inadvertently, I could see the office being pissed about that. Right. You know, but again, this, you know, this works well enough. It's just, it's a weird thing because so the boss is telling him like, you don't fit in like not from lack of doing a good job, but because he isn't friends with everyone. Right. But he says to him, and this is something else I think like upon the second watch, He's like, you're a square peg. He's like, I thought over time the edges would be worn off, but you're still a square peg. And it's like, he's literally telling him he's a piece that does not fit in this like situation. And he keeps on asking him. It's like, do you like your employee? Like the other like your coworkers? He's like, yeah. it's never occurred to me. He's like, I guess so. You know, like they seem fine. Right? Yeah. But this, they, the fact that like, again, it's it, after knowing where this episode goes, him calling him a square peg is, is very on the nose, but it's it's wonderful because it's it's telling you exactly where this episode's going. And one of the things that uh, was painted out to like a, a different critic about this episode makes me appreciate him as a character more. And I'll, I'll just say it now: um, somebody said that he shows signs of being autistic, yeah, or um, like or Asperger, some some type of he's on a spectrum of yeah. like you know like he's not. Like there's even a discussion later about what's considered normal. Yeah, and the, the and surprisingly advanced conversation to be had in a TV show in '63. You know about that, but yeah, like once you kind of have that in your head, because even watching it, I'm like, he's not. There's something not right. It's not the right word, but it's like he's different. You know, and but you, and I don't think Charles Beaumont, like when he wrote the screenplay, I don't know if that was his intent, but this is a very kind of nuanced like character. For yeah, him. yeah I, for, I believe that wholeheartedly. I think that especially Duvall's um, representation of the character gives me more of that, especially like when you see every other sequence. Like he doesn't feel like he fits in, but also doesn't feel like he needs to have to fit no, in. No, he's, well. he's matter of fact and then slightly puzzled when someone brings up something to him that's never occurred to him before because it's not in his worldview. Right. You know, and it's like, and that's, that's Charlie. Like he's a, he's a very sympathetic character. He does get some weird moments later that you're like, I don't know about that, but I'm, I'm, I'm on team Charlie throughout most of this episode. Um, but yeah, so the boss boss is like letting him go and be like, and for God's sakes, Charlie, you know, you still live with your mother. I'm like, why is that? Why is that important? You know, that was a big society expectation of him to not be living with his mother anymore. It's like it was a weird thing to mention him in regards to like letting him go as an employee. It's like that should have no bearing. That means that he has a place to live and he walks to work. And why hold this against his character Yeah, at all? Like, yeah, you're judging his work ethic. That's it. Yeah. And, and like, thank God that we have a, a different 
representation of like what our our management is like nowadays because depending upon like yes yes in a healthy in a healthy work environment <laughs> yeah. it should be yes it's just that unfortunately there's still these things that do linger you know yeah. but it was just very like i that's something i i guess i was not expecting this episode to go like towards and I, it was really interesting i watched training videos that like start out like this and you're like this is what you should not do <laughs> yeah like, <laughs> Don't be this D-bag. Don't let go of employees that want to work through lunch and all they want to do is their job. Right. Don't do that. So don't say, hey, shouldn't you move out of your mother's place by now? Like, and, sir, this is a Wendy's. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> so throughout this entire criticism, uh, Charlie is just like, he's just accepting that it, it's over. And even like his boss says, you know, we can let you finish out the month. Charlie says, it's cool, man. Like he essentially says, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> I get the notion. He was just like, Nope, this is the decision you made. I'm not going to take your charity. Like I get that. Yeah. Um, this also makes me think a little bit too, and I don't want to drag the episode out super long, but Hey, that's what we do here. Now. These are hour long episodes that we watch. And we'll then there's some more they're, meat. They're four hour episodes that we talk. No, um, this reminds me a lot of, um, of Burgess Meredith's character from time enough at last. Yes. Uh, cause yes. even though he was a little bit more like, you know, mousy, all the the whole world just shit on him because he just wanted to read, and like everybody was like, "You're weird. You want to read." Like that's not like that's not something you like. Maybe you say that now because people aren't just like you. You don't look at your phone. You look at books. Like that might be the. It just there's this like common like punching bag of like the person that has an interest that's different than yours. We're going to shit on them. I was hoping that you would bring that up because that was one you guys covered in the past. And I wholeheartedly agree with your uh, view on that. This, this character is like parallel to that. Yeah. It's like people don't understand him, So they just write him off as a weirdo. Yeah. So I I think that's a good, it it is a good parallel for these guys. So, so yeah, Charlie gets let go. He leaves, he goes back home. And um, so then uh, this is this, we meet his mother who just is, you could tell like, she's like, like if there's a helicopter mother, this is her. Like, I don't think she doesn't mean well. It's just that she's never known not this type of life of raising a family and raising her kids. And she has two. One of them got away. Yeah. Charlie never did. So. And, and it's like it, it. the father is not there anymore. They don't talk about what happened. Well, they to mentioned him. he died whenever he was younger. Oh, yeah. Okay, like, yeah real, and he's like, but my mother needs me. Like, and it's oh, like, that's right. That, it's, just, it's a one off thing. You know, but it's, it's like. like he transitions into the man of the house. Like he is able to take care of his mother, Yeah, you know, like no one else is there. So she cares for him. And likewise, she, he cares for her. Yeah. I just, just, I'm just gonna throw this out here. And uh, the way Robert Duvall looks and the way he carries himself and he keeps referring to her as mother the entire time. I kind of think that we're seeing Mike Pence's marriage work in front of us as we're watching the whole episode. You didn't know that Mike Pence calls his wife mother. No. Yeah. They'll look it up. It's weird. Okay. So he's like, like, uh, did you want Coco? Yes, mother. Like, you want me to take your shoes off? Yes, mother. Like, it's like this whole weird thing that I goes on. I was thinking of Norman Bates. Well, uh, hey, <laughs> potato, potato. Uh, no. Uh, yeah. And yeah, this was like a whole the, I like that you went cinematic. I went political, so people could throw stones at me if you want. That's fine. But it's like, this is a black and white episode, and Robert Duvall kind of has like blonde hair. So, you know, that could be white. And he keeps calling this other person that's the most important woman in his life mother. I don't know. 
the math isn't that hard to figure out on this one. It's just weird. Uh, but then, but she, she freaks out cause she's like, Oh, did she's like, I'm going to call your boss because like, why? Like basically like, why would he let you go? You're a good worker. And why, like, why living with me is, why is that important? She's right about those things, but she's trying to fight his fights for him. And he's like, don't do that. Don't do that. And then she's like, why can't you keep a job? And that's why I was like, didn't this last one last four years? Like, what's that mean? Right. Like it's, <laughs> it's like the expectations are like so high of him as well. It's like. What do you expect yeah. from this guy? Like, what what are like the overall goals for your son? And she does like the projected guilt of like I must have done this. Like she she wants him to be like, no no no, you're fine. Like you know all that, right? The one thing that pissed yeah. me off. It's like if I would have let your father discipline you the way that he wanted to. Yeah. Like what the hell does that mean? Yeah, basically. If, well, even if you broke your brain a little bit more, maybe you'd keep a job. I don't understand what that means. Like, maybe, maybe if you're dumb enough, you'd have friends, Charlie. Like <laughs> that that really pissed me off. Like yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like I, no, that's I, frustrating, right? <laughs> and then, but so if she she wants him to get a girl, settle down, have a family. Yeah, and that's you know, and that's another thing where she's projecting on him. And that's the second time where everybody seems to know what Charlie needs, but no one ever asked what Charlie wants. Like. No one asks him at all in this episode ever what he wants. Yeah, what's good? Yeah, what what do you need? What what's good for you right now, man? Yeah. Like, what are you aspiring to do? Yeah, you know. So, you know, he placates her. He goes to bed, and as he, like as he goes into his bedroom, he starts whistling the tune that was from the harpsichord, and it's like the first time he seems smile. Like he's feeling it. It's like he's remembering that and he liked it, and then his mom Amelia comes in. She's like, "What are you doing?" Like, like yeah, she just you, bust you, into his room. Did you did you hear that on one of those pocket radios that the kid leave around? Like you know, like what? How dare you smile? Yeah, this is not only a proof list of songs that mother wants to hear. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, they uh, she just like just bursts into his room yeah. and it's like what is the, a song? They also set up the notion there that pays off later that he never locks his door. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that until right now. That's something she says later. So she just walks in, you know. And he's like 30 yeah. years old. And yeah. Like, and it, this guy has no real semblance of what, uh, like, his space is. Like, or, this is or what it means space. to be a grown up. Like, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, like, they keep treating him like a kid. Even his sister says later, like, you've been acting this way since you've been 14. Like, yeah. he's kind of in, like, this state of, like, suspended animation because no one will let him, like, exist. They just keep putting it on him, right? So, anyway, he whistles uh, the tune. He likes it. And then we get back to him at the museum, like, the next time. He goes back. And, like, the guard, the, he walks by and kind of, like, smiles at the guard. Guard's like, oh, this guy's back. Like, the interplay between them the whole episode is a little interesting because, like, the guard knows something's up with him. But he hasn't crossed the line, so he can't really confront him yet. Well, he ends up going to the unemployment agency. Oh, that's right. that. So like, yeah. cause he, he promised his mom that he, after like, he walks out of there though, he goes to the museum. You're right. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yes. Yeah. So episode he, eight, <laughs> this is all good. It's all good. Well, it was such a, a minor detail in the episode. Like yeah. if you turned away for a second, like I did the first watching, I didn't even see that. Like it was like such a blip. Um, yeah, but it's kind of like a blip to Charlie too. Like, yeah. he's like, I, I, I fulfilled my obligation time to go stare at the tiny lady. Yeah. You know? So he like, went there and he has the card in his hand of like the next employer. And it's like, he keeps on looking at it like so morose, like, oh, I don't yeah. want to do it. And each step, like each sequence, it's like, he's even more upset about looking at it. And the final, the final sequence before he walks into the, the museum, he looks at it and just goes into the museum. It's like, Ah, forget it. You know, like, yeah. Like, I'm I'm at my happy place 
for right now. Like yeah. I have a moment to myself. Yeah, he's like, I'm unemployed. Now I can just go to the museum whenever I want. You know, like that's you know, that's what I aspire to. It, you know, honestly, <laughs> it's such a pure thought too, because he was at that place for four years. He has a moment to himself. He's not employed. Mm-hmm. His mom's not there to watch over him. It's like, you know what? Let me dip into the museum. And I that's the, the Sterling intro talked about him being like a lonely man with like no, no time to himself. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah. So he goes back to the museum. He goes back up to uh, the dollhouse, and uh, you know he's. Um, he, you know, the guard sees him, but like, there's a nice, uh, the, the, the camera starts following the action in the house. It reminds me, and the music on purpose is supposed to remind you more of like a, um, like a silent film yeah. with like the more dramatic, like piano, like the dun, 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 dun whatever it is, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. it's like an action sequence from then, like a Keystone cops type of sound. Right. I uh, mean, that's not the right setting, but you, you get the notion that the, the, it feels like a throwback on purpose and it was done on like purpose. Like Nosferatu type, yeah. type like, um, but Again, because this the 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 set of this house where the actors really are is done in profile, the camera crane can move amongst the walls, and it's like it was cool looking because it's how they would do some of those transitions in those films, and it made me think of Hereditary recently. Uh, have you've not seen Hereditary? Unfortunately, so, not. Oh, spoiler: they deal with miniatures sometimes, and there's some really oh. interesting camera shots. Like literally, Tony Collette's character makes miniatures as like an art. She's an artist. Uh, and she does like these like installations and stuff and it, it ties into the movie. That's not a spoiler because the very first shot in the movie is of a bedroom and you see it and it's like, it's like, you see like a, like a, a tiny house and the camera slowly pushes into this bedroom and then you see someone wake up and you realize it's, you're actually in the bedroom of her son getting ready to go to a funeral. And it's very trippy how like it just slowly pushes in on this model. And then suddenly you're seeing the scene between him and Gabriel Byrne. It's a badass movie. I've been waiting to watch this. I, I'm 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 so excited about seeing it, and you're just. But if you like the the manager stuff, like yeah. there's some really like interesting things that happen in that film. That I'm I'm not saying that you know Ari Aster was inspired by this episode, not at all. But just after seeing that last year or the year before, and then seeing this now, it makes me think of that. These shots, yeah. honestly, uh, were, like they were cool looking. Yeah. Hell yeah, they yeah. were. Like I really like because it's such a departure from everything else I've seen around this time. Like it's like it's. It gives a new facet. Well, that and also too, there was a logic to it in the sense that um, there was, a, and I don't know if this is what the, the director was going for, but the, back when the, the the silent films were being made, there was a lot of just like thought process that audiences couldn't follow the action of a story if you cut things meaning like um like Buster Keaton made a big joke about how he would uh walk out of a house, get into a car, turn on the car drive the car across the street, park the car, open the door, walk into a house, open that door, and then continue on to the next scene. Basically taking the piss out of the notion that the audience isn't sophisticated enough to understand that he's leaving one location and going to the next. So he would make these contrived long shots just to be like, see, like this is what you think how people think. We're more sophisticated now, but there was literally moments where the camera would do like these big prolonged takes to keep the action going so that way the audience supposedly would not lose the story. And there's these like really interesting crane shots of going upstairs and moving from room to room that are like these one takes that happen in the dollhouse 
that feel very much as much as they are dynamic. They feel like a throwback to that time to like the silent films. I, 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 I dig it. You know, so. like, well, yeah, especially because of the music that they yeah. play during the scenes too. And like the way that the characters are depicting things. And, and, they, and aside from the doll, uh, the guy that shows up, like the guy with the top hat, which made me think of the person you kept seeing in the, the Stone Temple Pilots Interstate Love Song video. Yeah, it made yeah, me yeah. a lot. I was like, is this the penguin from Batman? Um, uh, you know, uh, everybody in the maid that you see too, all of them have a little bit of an exaggerated performance, mm-hmm. which again, they're supposed to be figures in a dollhouse, but they're also kind of feeling a little silent filmy. So they're supposed to act exaggerated because you never hear them talk. Right. And I thought that was cool. Yeah, I, I I agree. Yeah, so, um, so yeah, we, so we uh we see the dollhouse and it, everything is playing out that that way. Um, no, because the, the 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 gentleman suitor shows up to like woo the the girl because she's at the piano. He comes over and they meet, and he handed over his top coat and like his gloves and hat to the maid, and I think he kisses the doll's hand. That we keep calling her the doll because she doesn't really have a name. Uh, so it's like you get this notion of like you see Duvall's character, Charlie, watching this like suitor coming for the girl that he's kind of enraptured with. Right. And he, he seems perturbed by it. <laughs> well, yeah. Someone's horning on his lady. You know, yeah. like, hey, that's my tiny lady there, dude. Like, get out of here. My tiny lady. Um, yeah. Like, because he's. That he's was the original name of the Elton John song, too. Tiny lady. It yeah. wasn't tiny. <laughs> anyway. It's a good Sorry. song. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it just, uh, he looks on, uh, I, I wrote here, he was friend zoned in the museum. Like, and then, <laughs> and then I know they didn't look at him, but I just wrote all caps. Why is this giant staring at us? Like they're in the middle of that. And then it does this thing where he kind of looks at the camera and presses his nose against the right. glass of the dollhouse, but it's directly facing us. And he turns his head a little bit. It was like, I think it was done for comedy, but it's kind of unnerving. Yes, I, I agree with that because the second viewing on this, um, again, I was trying to like do some other stuff during the first viewing, but at like really watching every aspect of this this scene, I was like, he is like infatuated. With yeah, her. It, he's yeah obsessed, and it's and, like, but the, like he presses his nose and just turns. I wish that I was able to get a screenshot of that because. CBS All Access and Hulu, they the moment you try to take any like actual print screens, the whole screen just turns black. So I yeah. can't do screenshots like I've done the other three seasons. Yeah. That would have been my favorite image from the episode, and I probably would have made it my profile picture on Facebook for a while. <laughs> like well, I just, yeah. Well, if anybody had not seen the scene yet, yes. uh, just imagine putting your head sideways and pressing it up against glass. You and making s- eye contact with somebody else. Yeah, opening up <laughs> your eyes as wide yeah. as possible. Yeah. Like he was upset. Yeah, like, it was weird. Oh, he's taking my girl. Yeah. So, so it's like so they leave. The scene cuts, and then we go to uh, uh, back to the family, like his mother's kitchen, and he's late for breakfast. Right. Yeah, and this is when we meet Myra. Uh, Charlie doesn't look Charlie. well. Yeah. <sighs> Supposedly, he doesn't look well. And then there's the bit where the mother was like, I'm not like the, like, cause like we also have, um, bud there too. Um, we have scrappy do there as well with yeah, Myra. It's a, it's a brother-in-law. Yeah. Which, I mean, I just questioned Myra and Bud's like relationship. Cause I feel like, I feel like they shouldn't be together. Cause like, he's like that lunkhead construction guy. Yeah. Like, and, but she's like, you know, I feel like she's more of like, um, the progressive, like feminist type, even though she does 
she says things later that aren't exactly feminist, but I feel like she's more like, I'm going to, you know, I, you know, I, I like intellectual things. Here's my Cro-Magnon husband. <laughs> like, it's like this weird, like, yeah. Yeah. Th- we'll get into those. It's certain... like, it's like Fred Flintstone and, and Wilma. Like it's a weird, like, it's like before that was a thing, right? That's like maybe the honeymooners, maybe that was the vibe. I don't he know. He just seems like the dude that you would meet at the bar and like, what up dude? Yeah. You're like, he'd be like, that guy's fun. I don't really want to hang out with him. Right. (laughs) I I, I don't want to go to rallies with him because I know he's going to be on the opposing side. Yes. Yeah. That's how he felt. I was like, rally's the restaurant. No. No, no. I was like, what? (laughs) Big Buford sucks. No, he's going to be like, hey, that's Mike Pence. That's my brother-in-law. He's there's mother. Uh, No. uh, So no. Uh, So then, so we get the notion that like Charlie's supposedly not looking good. uh, And the mother, she was like, I'm not that kind of mother that hovers over the kids. And she's like, let's ask Myra. And Myra doesn't actually answer the question. She just like, oh, yeah, just passed the butter. I thought that was a funny, it was a funny bit. She didn't, yeah, I, I, I mean, enjoyed that Purposely well. funny. Like, yeah. yeah. Good the good comedy bit because like, especially the look on her, in her eyes, like you didn't even need to say the pass yep. me the butter thing. But um, <laughs> so, yeah, like, <laughs> so we, we get to like, like how Charlie is approached about a job proposition by Buddy. Yeah, but he he found like some kind of an accounting job at his like construction thing. And but like it's just Bud Bud means well. Like I'm he means well this entire episode, but he just doesn't know how to say things. Right. And he was just like, yeah, I talked to the guy. Everybody like everybody knows that you're a weirdo or whatever he says. Right. Like, yeah. And like Myra is like almost there like like jabbing him the entire time yeah. like just say the right thing yeah. scumbag like what, <laughs> like how do we get but, you? but then but then you could tell that like you know charlie even though this is a golden opportunity for him he's like ah it means i'd have to that's far out of the city yeah and then Meyer's like no bud can pick you up and and the, and the mother she's like oh that'd be perfect he's like no i'm good i got something better going on and uh oh there also the mother has a suspicion that he has a girl that he's not telling anybody about mm-hmm. so yeah, he just he doesn't take the job, and then goes away, and then we find out in the next scene because it's not directly stated in the scene that the mother and um and um the the, the sister, which her name is um right in front of me, Myra, Myra Jesus, episode eight, uh, they're in cahoots to try to find out she is being put up by her mother to follow Charlie the next day to see where he's going when he leaves leaves the house, so we end up finding her following him to the museum. Right. So then we get that confrontation there. And so we see that um, Charlie is telling the doll, essentially, like, the doll can't hear him. Like, we see this. Like, it's all being depicted. Like, he's outside the display. <laughs> Maybe she can't. She's just trying to be polite and pretend that she doesn't. She's like, ah, that giant's back again. I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. But, like... For for what it is, um, he, but he's now engaging with her. He's now being him mm-hmm. to her. Though there's a weird bit though, because he's like, and then he talks about like his breakfast, and he was like, and she eats like a piece of toast in like the like in her little room, and he was like, well, I gotta be honest, you should have more than that for breakfast. It's like, Charlie, you don't like people telling you what to do. Don't 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 project on this tiny woman. Like just you know. Well, here's the interesting fact too. So it's immediately the next time that he gets to see her, that he starts talking to her because he saw the suitor. Yeah. He's now trying. Yeah. He's like, this is, I need to, I need to start. (laughs) I need to start working my angle. I need need to, I need to wedge myself in here, you know? So, uh, so yeah, he's talking to her and then Myra, uh, you know, 
find, finds him, you know, well, actually, uh, what was it? The garden confronts him and was like, you know, you've been here for four hours or whatever he says, or for four hours. And, um, and then Charlie gets defensive about that too. I, I, maybe I'm getting that mixed up, but he was like, am I doing anything wrong? And the guard's like, no, you're not. He's like, well, then leave me alone. It's the first time Charlie stood up for himself. And I think that happened before this, but either way, he's kind of put the guard on notice of like, don't, don't talk to me while I'm looking at the display case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's like, am I doing anything wrong? But it was like the first time he was assertive of like, then leave me alone, you right. know, which comes off as weird and like off putting, but Charlie's still asserting himself, you know, it, oh, I, yeah. and I'm really like, maybe this is just Duvall doing a really good job of like his depiction, but like his mannerism, it's almost like a, a switch flipped. In no, he's, he's, he stiffens up and actually, you know, stands up straight and like says it to him. Right. So like, yeah, please leave me alone. Yeah. Like, Okay. So then, so then I think that, you know, then either way, eventually there's a situation where Myra finds him looking at, at her, at the doll and he's talking to her and then Myra's like, Oh, you know, you're here. She's like, I just happen to be walking by. I see you walk in. And he's like, she's like, do you want to you know, buy me a cup of coffee? He was like, well, cafeteria's closed. <laughs> you know, and she's, she's like, like, well, we could go somewhere else. And then they go to the most Italian diner ever or whatever. Did you notice that they immediately the change locations? Changed it's like, it's too. like completely like, you know, Italian music and checkered, like, uh, like tabletops and everything, which is fine. But it's like, they need you to know this place is Italian. It's, Decorative uh, yeah, cups it's like, and yeah. everything too. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, oh, okay. Great. I don't know. So but it's anyway. great in the cheese here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, the, the, the Mario brothers are behind. I don't know. It's just weird. Uh, so that she tries to tell him, like, she thinks she knows what's going on with him. Uh, she says basically, you know, I know you're lonely. I know you're, you know, basically I know you need time by yourself, but she's also like, I blame mother. I blame you because you let this happen. You're over 30 years old. It's like, and she tells him like living with, with mother is like sick after a while. It's like, she's trying to blame him a little bit for his situation, which I guess he does have some ownership, but it's like, I don't know if that's the right tact here. It's a similar conversation that he had to his boss too. And it's like, yeah, she's not reading him correctly. Right. And like, I feel like the context has had to be like really difficult for him to process as well, because it's like, not only did he have to hear this conversation with his boss, but now he's hearing it from his own family member. It's like, I think so Myra again has, she, she does love him. She does care about him. And, she's she's reading into him what she would think that she would need right and so i'm not saying that she's saying this not from a place of like she's saying it from a place of love but her her uh her radar on him is is off you know and so she's like you know you are lonely so she does recognize that she recognizes that he's not happy where he is but then she's like you you need a girl she's like you're at that time of life he's like well what do you mean she's like ah, i can't say that out loud cuz i'm your sister and we're talking about boning you know like not them but like him and somebody else uh this isn't game of thrones that we're talking about here but it's like she's trying to be like you need to get laid is basically what she's yeah that's to him. like kind of what she's gearing towards essentially but, but i also will give the twilight zone credit because i don't think they could have said anything like that three years previous just like in the jess bell episode where she's like and then you touched me it's like there's some really coded like language here that's yeah. that's being very blunt, but they're just saying as best they can. But the fact she's like, well, what do you mean? And she, she was off put. She's like, uh, I know a person like basically she's like, you don't even have to call her. You just got to show up. And I'm just like, who is this Harriet person? My right. God, dude, like, that, that, like that sequence, like that little small <laughs> yeah. sequence there. I'm like, 
This is the sure girl. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, listen, listen, Charlie, um, just meet her at um, 530 under the bleachers. You know, like, it's fine. Yeah, there we go. Some like 80s innuendo there going. Yeah, she likes Pop Rocks and the Diet Dr. Pepper. It's Mm. like, what? You know, like, (laughs) compliment her braces. She's a sure bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wink. Wink. Um, (laughs) But then. So, yeah, yeah. Harriet is like this girl that uh, she knows from her, her place of employment, like, I'm just going to set you up, gives her or gives him the address. No number, just address. Yeah. Just show up. Like, he's like 555 five, five honeypot. Like, what's this even? I don't even is know. Is that a thing? Like, who, who does that? I don't know. It was my address. Uh, uh, yeah, just, it's, I mean, Craigslist. Thank God we're living in a different age. Well, I mean, she set this up in advance. Like, so she's like, you, you got like, oh, he'll be over tonight. Where's, I, I get that it was like, but it's still awkward, right? But then we get to the actual date. And, um, so they, like you end up catching them as they're walking through a park and like, there's this weird interaction. And I wrote, and like, cause she keeps saying, Oh, do you like me? He's like, sure. She's like, Oh, you're the quiet type. Are you? She's like, Oh, you're the dangerous ones. He's like, no, you're safe with me. Like he's misreading. Now misreading is not the right word. Like he's taking what she's saying at face value and like spinning it. To- I'm just, just responding as he would. Cause yeah. it, this is not important to him with her. Right. You know? Spinning it to a point like what may be normal conversation. Like, yeah, and she's just basically trying to, like, you know, get him to hang all over her and everything. And I wrote here in my notes, she's hot to trot. She wants to Robert his Duvall. That's what I wrote here. Because um, she does. She wants to Robert the heck out of his Duvall. And he's like, oh, and she's like, you should kiss me. And he's like, what? It's like awkward, awkward, awkward moments, right? And then yeah. she ends up falling off the bench because he's, I don't know, like, you could, he's he's not into it. He's so it. tense. He's, yeah. like, super, super tense. Yeah. She's leaning into it like crazy. And it's like him just trying to like not really be interested. She ends up falling off the bench. Yeah, but she blames him. She slaps him for, and I wrote um, as like he gets slapped for not knowing how to kiss or put out. <laughs> is what I wrote. And then like she's like, you need to see a doctor, and like just storms off. And then uh, yeah, that's where we get that where he's just like he's just kind of slightly confused. Is like if he's also probably relieved. He's like, well, at least that woman's gone. My God, what was that? But this has got to play so much more against his psyche. Like, yeah. but again, the, Harriet's pushing on him what she expects him to do. Yeah, you know, it's, and it's, it's, it's not just, him. It's such a yeah. bummer for Charlie because, like, he has no interaction with women and like barely interaction with like people in general outside of his own family. Yeah, you know, it's like here's another little like tally for the other guy. Like, oh yeah, you guys were right. I'm not. I'm not okay. You yeah, know, it's like it's it's such a bummer. Yeah, so then uh, we get back to him looking in the dollhouse, and we see that uh, Top Hat Man is actually uh, bursting in. He like you know disposes of the the maid and goes in to go after the doll, like and causes her to faint. And like he grabs her and he starts to carry upstairs for like nefarious reasons. And Robert Duvall's care like Charlie is like just up. He's distraught Dude, watching I, this. I love this sequence because it really captures that silent film, yeah, uh, like portrayal so much more. Like the way that the cane that he has is broken over the maid. Yes, yeah. It is so. It is so silent film. Like it's and then like the way he's moving towards the doll, like it's like. So nefarious and like, like you almost expect a title card to show up. Like, yes, you know, yeah. I loved it so much, and like it made me want to put on a silent film immediately after because it just it captured it so well. And then Charlie's watching all of this, and it's like 
he's so helpless. Like he's outside of the display and he's beating on the display and he's like, he, you know, he cares about her so much. Yeah. He, he, he actually, in that moment before that, he, he throws out his love to her. Well, that's true because he's like, oh, he, he talks about the date with uh, Harriet, and then he says something there about like, you know, he's like, you know, if I, if he's like, I do, he's like, I do love you. He's like, I could say that because you won't hear me. Because, yeah. but, but he's like, but I would say it to you too if you could. Like, it yeah. was like, it's, it's still kind of awkward, but it's like, it's him opening up to her. Like, you know, and it's like, it's, it's sad to like say this. It's almost like a high schooler or like a a middle schooler, like really understanding what love is and not being able to come to grips with it, mm-hmm. but still feeling the feelings. So it's like he knows he cares so much about her, but doesn't really understand what love is. You know what I mean? Like, no, that, it's like, you're, that's valid. Yeah. 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 It's like he has he has such an aff- affliction for her. He he tells her it's like, I do love you. You know? Yeah. And like he sees, the but just suitor. the way he has this kind of weird twinkle in his eye when he says it, it's just like, yeah. ah, you're you're gonna smash your face against this glass again, aren't you, Charlie? Right, yeah, 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 right. You're gonna just start, you're gonna start licking it like you're gonna, like it's gonna get weird, you know? Like, uh, no, but so then like the you know the villain, uh, the, you know the the top hat guy goes to take her up to the bedroom. Um, and again, a wonderful crane shot going up the steps. So it's all going on. So then Charlie starts bashing against the glass and breaks it. Yeah, you take some yeah. some other piece. Yeah, he, gr- he grabs something. It. Yeah, some uh, something Egyptian that because clearly these these displays go together. It just like breaks the. And yeah, I, I love how this sequence is put together. Even like when he shoves his face against it earlier. Yeah. in the show, like you see his his nose smashed against the screen. And, and credit to them, there, there's a, a rear projection thing they kind of did with um because the dollhouse was built to scale like for the, for the actual dollhouse and then they actually and the trivia says they built the set like to be scale which i i you you do see it so i do believe it uh i don't know if they built the whole thing but they built enough of it yeah um so but when you see him looking into it there's this not rear projection type of thing but there's this projection effect that's happening where you see the inner workings of the dollhouse from the physical set, the large set. And you can tell it's a little off, but it still works. Yeah. It's really like, cause the edges are a little dark on the, but it's like, it looks good. Like, like I bought the illusion. Um, but yeah, that whole thing's great. And his, his, his performance of being distraught's great, but he breaks the glass. Um, and then, um, the guard comes over and it was like, confronts him about it. And yeah, like you get the whole thing of like, uh, He's like, oh, he tells the guard, he's like, but the guy was going to do this. And the guard's like, oh, well, okay, it's not going to happen. Like, basically, he's placating him. And I think that's the way that ends, right? Because, like, uh, the Clark, the, the Clark, the the guard is trying to calm him down because he took a swing at a display. Yeah, well, yeah. he's like, he wants to hear him for a second. It's like, okay, man, yeah, wh- whatever. <laughs> like, yeah. like, let me get you out to the cops that are about to show up. <laughs> the guard's like, I get it. Sometimes at night, Rob Williams comes to life and walks around, and there's Ben Stiller here sometimes. Yeah, this Teddy is not Roosevelt. that time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it, it's, it's Genghis just, Khan shows up. It gets weird, you know? Like, <laughs> exactly. I, I, would, I would love if this is actually just a prequel to the Night at the Museum where it's a little, little tiny Egyptian artifact that causes this, the dollhouse to animate and nothing else. Like, I wonder if that was like some of, <laughs> somewhat of like the uh, inspiration. <laughs> great. I've been still like, you know, I was really, I was really inspired by this episode of the Twilight Zone. You know, Owen Wilson's in this too. Oh, what? <laughs> what? <Yeah>. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So um, the, that leads into the next scene where he's, he's in a doctor's office. Yeah. Which is basically act three of this episode where yeah. 
he's being confronted by um by the doctor, Doctor Wallman. Which he he's being told essentially he's not crazy. He's just the doctor needs to figure out why he was thinking the things that he was. Like you're not crazy for what you were thinking. We just need to understand why you were thinking. Yeah, he that. like so again. This is very proactive. So I'll give yeah. I'll give um, Beaumont credit that Doctor Wallman's character isn't saying he's not saying like he's like he's like Charlie. I'm not doubting that you saw something. What what we need to figure out is why. Exactly. Like, and then he's like he's like this is what's going on. He's like to you it was reality, but we need to figure out why this is happening. And it's like that's a very like progressive thought process. Exactly. And I I I. I I commend that kind of logic for writing at this time and age. Like, I don't think that a lot of it would be easy to write the the um, the shrink nuts. as being as basically being like, I don't know what's going on. Out the door, you're done. Which that's kind of happened a few times in the Twilight Zone up to this point, right. where there's like, I don't know. I guess you got a mental imbalance, and here you got to drink this entire thing of mercury or whatever. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, uh, but he. He he's presenting him reality. He's like, this is what you thought you saw. This is what's going on. What if what if you could see her? Like, what would you do? And that's why I loved that sequence because yeah. it's like, all right. So let me give you a base of what reality really is. Like, yeah, and and, and um, Duvall's character, like he has like a, the bit of like his, he has tears in his eyes. She's talking about her was worried about her safety and all of these things, you know, it, like it, 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 everything that you can imagine from somebody who is emotionally disturbed. He is depicting as well. He is, he is reserved. He's, he's closed off. He's sitting on the couch. He's like crumbled up in his and, like little. And when they ask him questions about, like you said, there was three people in there. He's like, yes. And he's like, there was only one figure in the display. He's like, well, I don't know. He's like, the, he's like, the man must've come from outside. He's like outside of the display. He's like, no outside the house. Like he, he, he sees this as its own reality of like, I'm looking in on this. I don't see a dollhouse. I see a house, you know? And it's right. like, so he had as much as like, he's like trying to, he's not waffling his answers. His explanations explain more of how he's seeing this the entire time. But yeah, like, so Waldman's like, what would you like? What would you like to see her? Yeah. And he's like, yes. Opens a case, pulls out the doll. Puts it in her in his, his hand, hands. and you get a nice shot. It's it's well, okay, it's not the best shot, but you no. see, there's been there's been worse versions of this in the Twilight Zone so far. But you get like a like a still shot of the actress that's playing the doll, superimposed over supposedly Robert Duvall's hand. Yeah, um, and she's sitting there like all prim and proper, and he sees her, and like he's in tears at this point, and like he's happy that she's safe, but he's like you could just see him like fawning over her. And then as he cries, he takes the doll, puts it up to his cheeks, and it's like he's like like soaking in the tears. It's like, I think if I was that doctor and I was reasonable at that point, I've been like, no, 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 we're going to put the doll away now. That's like, that was a little like you let him have that just a second too long. That felt a little weird. Well, even then it's like, but it was sweet on his point. Right. And it's like, do we need to give her back? And it's like, well, it isn't our property. It's yeah. the museum's property. Like, just trying to, like, give that, him a like, understanding. This is what it is, and this is why it's being put away. Yeah, I yeah. get that. But it was like, did you let you, did you have to let him have the doll up against his face as he's crying? I don't know about that, Dr. Wallman, but yeah. Uh, so then uh, then we got we cut to, as I think it's commercial break, we cut back to Charlie's family. Uh, so his mother, his uh, sister and brother-in-law are in the, the doctor's office. And there's this whole segment where the mother's like, I hope he's normal. And then the doctor goes in this very long, like roundabout thing, which is important. Like it's important because it exists. Um, you know, I know these episodes are an hour long. So you find these weird spots where it's like, they're kind of padding it out. Like you probably could have cut this part, 
but it's also kind of important where he's trying to establish like what the baseline is for what people say. When you say normal, what does that mean? And he's basically saying to them, like, if you keep applying your definitions of what normal is to Charlie, he's never going to be normal to you. Right. You need to understand where Charlie's coming from and Charlie's going to be Charlie. Yeah. And that's, a, that's exactly like yeah. what is going on in this sequence. And I think that's why it's, it makes more sense as a viewer to understand the sequence and like what the psyche is because like even when buddy is called out on his mannerisms, <laughs> his knuckle cracking yeah. over and over and over again. Yeah. Like, Buddy is really personifies like the the everyday man who doesn't understand mental health. Um, so when he is called out in that moment, it really it made me really be like, yes, Neanderthal, watch, learn, <laughs> figure out what the hell is going on. But I, I think I think Bud tried to understand, but he latched onto the wrong thing, which is the comedy beat, and then the whole thing of him cracking his knuckles when the doctor's like, "Well, why do you do that?" and he suddenly stops. That pays off again later. Like it's yeah. like I almost feel like the doctor was just pissed off at him, like cracking his knuckles the entire time. He's like, "You know what? I'm gonna psychoanalyze you for a second. How do you like that?" But yeah, it's like in that same in that same moment though. It's like as a viewer, you're like learn yourself like yeah they, this is what they're trying to personify like, I, like myra was kind of getting it but she's still kind of hung up on the notion that he has to have a woman you right know? and i think she probably feels further justified this by this because he fixated on the image of a woman uh but the mother just wants her she wants everything to go back to normal to go back to the way it was yeah uh, so that's what she wants so then charlie comes back he comes in the room he's now well and like he, you know, is like, oh, he says hi to everybody. And the mother's like, oh, I'm so sorry this happened. He's like, no, mother, don't be sad or whatever. One day I'll be vice president or whatever he says. And then, um, so then they end up having dinner. Like they cut back to him living there. And so you get the idea that like things are the way they were. Hunky, do- hunky dory. Like everything is completely fine. Like he'll take the job that Bud's offering. Uh, he is complimenting his mom about her cocoa and all this stuff. And then Myra's like, Harriet's coming back, you know, um, you know, clearly, uh, no one put a ring on that finger in the meantime. <laughs> he agrees to everything. Like, yes. you could have sold him on every single, uh, like, you Which, could have been like, the red is taking over right now. He's like, sweet. Yeah, well, like, um, and Meyer calls him out on that earlier in the episode, too. She's like, stop agreeing with me. But now it's like, it's just because she, like, it doesn't occur to her. She says it later where it's like, right. he seemed too healthy. It's like, that's the one thing you're mad at him about, but now suddenly you're okay with it. Cause he's now back. Well, the mannerism yeah. is slightly different though. He has a huge smile on his face. Oh yeah. Cause it's just, it, when you finally realize later that he knows what he's doing. When you have that Cheshire smile, everybody fucking agree. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Terry, he's so confident in himself it. now. He just uh, so I, I want to I want to point out I want I want to point out which um, you know we'll we'll fix that. <laughs> I didn't uh, have my side. No, up. That's funny. Like for the past like the, since he's since Terry's been on the show, he has a little cardboard sign <laughs> that he always puts in front of him. It says "Don't say the f word." All right, and this is literally the first time he's not put it in front of him, and then he says the f word. So I think that's amazing. Yeah, that's great. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> I uh, gotta have to guess. I have to fix that later. Sorry. No, it's that's fun. I I think it's funny. Uh, but so, I, yeah, yeah. So like, so your sign's back in place. We're good I, to go. I did it. Uh, so uh, <laughs> would it make you feel better if I said it now too? I'll. <laughs> no, it's fine, Paul. You've said it before. I have. Yeah, um, you have said it. Yeah, I, that's uh, okay. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it it just it bothers me that like 
that this like persona is like put up there and no one can see it like it's a fake persona but like, they, that's what so they want to see so they're like all about it it's know? so, so fake though like it's like as he's like looking at each person like this fake smile is there and it's yeah. like and and I was really worried for a moment that this thing was going to take like like a weirdly dark turn where like his brain got fixed and then suddenly like you know like there was going to be a thing where he never went back to the dollhouse but then you end up seeing like her murdered body or something there and you realize like oh no he was right and that poor girl's not dead <laughs> you know something like that like that's dark but it's like I was worried that it's like oh he's all good now you know and but he says, well, I need to lay down before Harriet comes here and, you know, tries to, you know, take advantage of me. So he goes to his room and this is when we see him actually lock the door. Well, it's after his mother, like, like tucks him in basically and takes his shoes off and all this stuff or whatever. She's like, are you sure you're okay? He's like, I'm great. And then she leaves and he locks the door and his face changes with like this resolve. He throws the key. Oh, yeah. I love, I love how he changes demeanor so quickly. Yeah. He just, he locks that door. He, he, he walks over to it like so quietly in a sense and locks the door and he just turns around. And he throws it like, F you, dude. Yeah, I'm done. Like, that, <laughs> I'm glad that you you held yourself back there. Too, yeah, guys. this time I did it. Cause my sign's up now. Your sign is up. I'm sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> So now, so then you know we get to um, Harriet comes over and they're like, well, you got to go get uh, Charlie. He needs, he needs to get ready for you know the you know the the the, the humpening or whatever's going to happen. The humpening, humpening. And so then they go to knock on his door and it's like they're like, oh, I can't open. And his mother's like, it must be locked. And it's like he never locks his door. And then like the Meyer goes over to Bud. She's like, break the door down. He's like, ah. she's like, break it down. So they break the door down. Charlie's not in his room. The windows open. Everybody's mystified as to where Charlie went to. Like, there's this whole segment of everybody calling out yeah, his name. Sister, it's like his sister like peeks under the bed. Yeah, and yeah like, it's just Charlie? like Charlie. You know, it's this whole thing. Like, it's like each of the family members does it. I was expecting Harriet to kind of like you know be putting on lipstick and be like Charlie, and then go back to putting on lipstick, like fixing her twenty dollar dress. Here. Yeah, all twenty dollars worth. But <laughs> if lunch costs sixty cents and the dress is twenty, she spent a fair amount of money on that dress. Then you know, I will it, say that it worked out. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Myra just thinks that he went to the museum automatically and she calls for like information. And there's one of the weirdest sentences I've ever heard in anything where, uh, she hangs up the phone and she said, Oh, they close every day at five, except Tuesday. This is Wednesday. Like people would know what day of the week it is. Like if she had been like, Oh, they close every day, but Tuesday. So, you know, and that was yesterday or like, or they close every day, but except for yesterday, like something, yeah. but it's like, she had to literally tell the audience like today is Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> it was a weird moment. So then they call, like, what was it? Uh, they call the cops or they call the doctor. And then, so while that's going on, uh, we cut to the museum where we find that he has been hiding in the sarcophagus and it opens up and it's, he kind of does that whole sh- like standing up straight thing for a moment, almost like uh like a Frankenstein thing before yeah. he exits. And it's like, I don't know if that was done for comedy or not, but it was like, it was weird. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then like, you see his face and he has like this smug look on his face. Like, ha ha ha. Yeah. I'm in I'm the in. museum. After yeah. And maybe this is where he admits his love to Alice. I can't remember. He calls her Alice. I know that much. He calls the doll Alice. He actually names her. He says her name is Alice. It's never mentioned in the credits. Wow. But yeah. And so then, uh, but he's like, oh, he's like, you know, it's like I had to, they told me what to believe because, but basically he's like, I, he's like, I, but I, I made them, basically he was like, they wanted me to tell me this wasn't real because, but I made them believe that what that, what they were saying to me, like basically he's like, 
I accept my reality. I made them believe that I was believing their reality, and now I'm back. You know, I tricked like, them. Yeah, he's like, I would never get to see you again. So then the doctor shows up at the house and is talking to the family, and he's like, well, then we'll go well, we'll go find him there. And the, Meyer's like, well, the, the museum's closed. He's like, no, he's there. The doctor's pretty smart. It's like, what's the one thing he wants? He's in that museum somewhere. We know that. So, yeah. So then it comes this whole big, like, like quick cuts back and forth kind of of them coming to the museum, Charlie looking in at the case and him like talking to her and realizing that they found him. And then uh, at this point, when I watched it the first time, I've never had so much of like a moment of like, please let the thing happen that I think is going to happen where I'm actually cheering for the character. I'm like, please give me, give me a happy ending on this one. Right. Cause I normally I'm okay with the gut punch. I just, Charlie was a shit on this entire episode. I'm like, give me this one, you know? So then they send in the guards and the mom's calling out to him and the doctor's like, he has to be here. And they go looking all over the place. And uh, here, I'll let you say the ending of what, well, it's, what they find. Yeah, it's like know? more of like a depiction of like, let out the hounds, you know? Cause like the doctor wanted to play a cool, like call out to him. Yeah. Let, let him come to us and everything. Like be more assertive. Okay. Now pull all the brakes, turn on the lights, send in the guards and the cops. Let's look for them. Like they tried to like be really nice to Charlie and they're like, forget it. Yeah. Let's get them. And then when they're looking around, everybody's looking in different areas. And all of a sudden that guard that he the was guard, talking, the one that was, yeah, he was, he was giving a brief one yeah. guard that was like, always like watching him. Like he, the guard, and that's one of the things that like they kind of touched on, but this guard was watching him for hours. Yeah, the guard. Yeah, the guard was he was been around Charlie a great deal of time watching yeah. him watch the dollhouse. Yeah. So he gets up to the dollhouse and he just kind of half heartedly looks into it and he's like, he oh, has this yeah. like wide eye look, like, like oh, oh shit, <laughs> like, oh no, yeah, and he sees the doll on like this like couch in the back of the scene yeah. with the gentleman that's holding up something in front of their face. Yeah. And then it's like, I, and so that eventually you find out that like, it's Charlie, he's there and it's like, it's an older, it's almost like a Viewmaster. I forget yeah. what they call it, but it's like Essentially, a, ma- a magic like- lantern or something. Like it's like, you know, she's showing him different pictures or different slides and he is happy as can be and she's content and the guard sees this and it's like, he knows nobody's going to believe him. And he also knows that it's probably, you know, like if Charlie was right this entire time, let him have that. As he like, he pulls back. He has a smirk on his face, like, "Good for you." Yeah, man. you did it. You, yeah. you, you were right. Yeah. You know, like you got the girl that you wanted. Yeah, and, that's and, it. I, and I, I love that resolution. Like to give the goat. Like that's it. Like I, I honestly love this ending for what Charlie wanted. Yeah, I mean, I, like, and so, um, you know. It, it ended like it's one of those times where it's like, please let him just get into the dollhouse. And it's like, he did. So that's good. Like for me. Um, and just since this felt like this was a character thing throughout um, that, yeah, like normally, even though even again, you, you do feel the time in this episode in terms of it being like 51 minutes long or however long it is, 54 minutes. Um, it's not as weirdly paced as the other ones so far in the season. It does feel a little long at times, but like, you really get to know him. You really get to see his perspective and he gets, he gets what he wants, which is the thing that no one wanted to give him this entire time. So 
yeah, I, this is a very sweet ending and it's just interesting to me that it actually played the week after Jezebel, which is another love story. You know, it's like it's just back to back love stories of different sorts, you know? So yeah, this was, this was a surprisingly sweet episode. And honestly, I, I, I kind of wanted to dive deep into like a moment of chaos because like this world is so filled with like, like no matter what chaos like like we're not gonna get any any like guaranteed tomorrows and this guy was always looking for something that could be guaranteed like it just seemed like he was when he looked at this display he saw something that was yeah like he saw a love that was guaranteed to him like it was like yeah, it he, was it was weird because it was a little one-sided but you know like you talk about like you're you don't know love you know, but the, the turns out like she's all about him now. She's probably like that giant guy was yelling at me this entire time. Now he's here. Good. I'll show him pictures. Maybe he'll stop talking, you know, but uh, yeah, no, it was. Yeah. For, for a series that does have its, it's happier endings and does have its like little romantic bits here and there. And with Charles Beaumont, there's no guarantee people are getting out like alive or happy because yeah. he he has no problem hitting you with straight in the face and being like, that's your ending, deal with it. This was this was just surprisingly sweet. And I think um when we look back on the season, this is one that's going to age pretty well in my mind. Yeah, it it, it did very well for me. And honestly, like the more even like as my ride over here to the studio, like studio yeah um i <laughs> it is a studio dude it's, it's a tiny room with some mics and some uh i don't know i have a what, what do i have here i have an infinity donuts gauntlet. Gauntlet. I, have a, I have a dunkin donuts coffee i have an infinity and a duster, yeah uh, yeah yeah <laughs> i have a star scream over there in the corner yeah we made it a studio yes um it's just like it's i i i want to analyze these things from so many different points of view like i really enjoy trying to like gravitating back to like how did i feel about it the first viewing and then how do i feel about it like pretty much right before i even talk about it mm -hmm. because like i'm not like really interested in just putting one view on it it's more about process like how do i feel about it now how do i feel about it later and i yeah. I, I honestly i love this episode and it's not about robert duvall and just his depiction of it i think the character is written well like it I is, think yeah. It's more like the the world doesn't know him well, and then like it's how he processes everything that he wants to get out of his life. Well, and there's even that line there too, where he was like, "Eric keeps telling me that I need a simple worldview, I need simple things," and he was like, "I don't." He's like, he's like, I look at your world. He's like, your, your world's not simple. He's like, if there's any place that has people, that doesn't make it a simple thing. Like he 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 calls it correctly of like. I don't need a simple world. I just don't want this one. Like, right. and so like, yeah, like there's, there's some good lines and his, he's one of the more well-realized characters in the individual episode of the Twilight Zone I've seen. And, and even like the, one of the things that it, when I, I really analyzed it, when he got caught up in that group that was like going through the tour through the museum, mm -hmm. it just seemed like it was depicting noise, so much noise. Yeah. And then when he finally went off into that other room, there was no noise. So when he found a display, he was absent of noise. 
Yeah. So that that made him fall in love with that character and that then much more. With the harpsichord that comes through, there's actually a singular flute uh, melody that runs through too. I think that mirrors the harpsichord, and there's some you know purposeful good music choices here. You're right. I think that's a good thing to, to point to. Uh, but yeah, like this was this was a good episode. Um, you know, like I. You're hoping that they're all winners, you know, in terms of like, but we know that season four so far has been some weird, weird things. This is definitely a weirder episode of the Twilight Zone and just in terms of what is going on. But, you know, it, it has a, it has a really sweet ending. So it's worth the price of admission. It's worth the journey. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I honestly like as far as the fourth season is considered. I really, really like this episode. All right, so really we got a. Like uh, since I keep miscorrect, you know, mis uh, uh, labeling this one, this was the eighth episode. We still have another uh, ten to go, so we'll see where we're at with that. So, uh, did you have any other notes about the episode? Because I have some trivia to get into. Because there's a reason why people may not have seen this episode. Hit it. Yeah. So, um, I aside from the fact that season four is a little weird because of rights things. So, like again, it's not on Hulu. CBS has it, which. While watching this on CBS Access, which is great, it occurs to me, don't they own the 80s Twilight Zone 2? Why isn't that on their streaming service? That feels a little weird to me. Like, I know the like the last season or two was produced in Canada. Maybe you, you can't have those, but can't we have some of that? That feels like, why wouldn't you do that? Side note. All that right stuff yeah. pisses me off. Yeah, so what happened with this one is that there there was a, a number of times throughout the, the run of the Twilight Zone where people would come forward and tell Serling and, and Kyogre Productions and, and CBS that, hey, Rod stole from me, plagiarized me. Um, so, and there was even times where even like um, Beaumont and Matheson were asked about other stories that Serling wrote where they were like, that was like shades away from something they wrote. And they're like, they're like, what can you, do? it's like, you know, you got all these creative people and they're, they're, they're bouncing ideas off each other. Like what, where are you going to cut? Where are you going to go with this? Right. However, a lot of the scripts that get submitted directly to Kyogre productions that the, the one, the, the lawsuit for this was when Buck Houghton was producing the show. And a lot of the, 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 just the, the blindly submitted scripts Serling never read. Because they he, they were usually inundated with other information, and you know it was rare for him to take an outside idea that wasn't through due process and say, okay, I'll pay for that. There was like hand, like um, I shot an arrow in the air was an idea pitched to him at like a dinner meeting, and he was like, I'll give you five hundred bucks for that idea. Like that that happened, but very 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 rarely, right? So someone had submitted a story. Uh, like a year or so before this, I, I, I had the, the story title written down, whatever. And they're saying that it was, um, you know, ripping off his story and it dealt with a, it was called like the 13th mannequin or something. And it dealt with a guy working in like a department store and he actually kind of developed a um, relationship with these mannequins. Like he would talk to them. And then over time, like people were like, you know, this is a little weird. Like he, he was older gentleman and something happened where they're going to like pull him off the job and he like collapses and like, you know, has a heart attack and dies. And then like the next day, another mannequin shows up that looks a lot like him. That's amongst the other mannequins. And that was the story. There was a story that Sterling wrote in season one called the after hours that dealt with a woman walking to a department store where mannequins came alive. I don't know why that guy thought this episode was the one that was like close to his. I don't know. But with all these other plagiarism lawsuits that would happen is that generally the people representing CBS and Cuyahoga would look at, um, look at what was being claimed and either if there was nothing there, it would, they try to get dismissed or they would do like a cost benefit analysis and just kind of pay them off and be done with it. Right. The amount of money that was being sought on behalf of this, this guy's, you know, his representation was so much that they couldn't just try to wave it away. So then there was two separate times 
when this was brought before court in terms of like plagiarism and both times it got dismissed. However, uh, this episode aired originally on the date that we talked about, right? So that would aired the, the week after, you know, so February 21st, 1963. And then after that second lawsuit, which happened later in the sixties, CBS was like, screw it. There's no need to show this again. So there was a 20 year ban that was self-imposed by CBS on showing this episode. Right. So it was only aired on television once to that point. In 1984? Later. When it was, you know, so there, there's something else that happened with that too. So during this original run of season four, this aired the one time. It didn't show up again in reruns. It didn't show up in syndication until 20 years later. And at that point, when they brought it back out, they did something neat that we didn't see here that they did this. They tried to do something a little different to kind of like bring people like to watch it. So anytime you actually got a view of the dollhouse, they did some artificial colorization. So the kind of like pierce the veil, that sounds kind of cool. Like that was, a, that, and I think for 84, they'd be like, Oh, what's this black and white thing doing? Like that would be enough to probably get people's attention. And honestly, that reminds me of like the wizard of Oz. Yeah. What that, they did with that. And that's a good, that's a, yeah, that's a really good way to say that. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's why you probably have not watched season four, but if you happen to see any of it, this is one that you may not have seen because it was really out of syndication for a while. And, um, yeah, that's, that's a shame because this is a really good episode. And you talk about like lost classics, which there was those two that we covered on the, the show a while ago. Those are the lost, lost classics. This is a lost episode in a lot of ways. It's now, it's now been available longer than it was not, but 20 years is still a long time to have this work not be visible to anybody. You and, know? and honestly, like the storytelling might not be for everybody, but I think that the, the overall storyline you can get into. I think I, I, I enjoyed it yeah. greatly. You know, like I, I, I loved uh, Charlie's character. I loved how like he was able to like really like avoid all of the like the the crap that everybody was putting against him. He like he just wanted to be himself. Like I, I love this episode. So. Yeah, it was it was it was good. So. Yeah, that's all I got for like trivia. Um, so uh, yeah, it just it just interesting history to this too. So right, um, but I just I wish that we've gotten more from this director in terms of the series because this is wonderfully directed. And again, I think Beaumont is capable of writing like like humor. I think this director had an ear for it and like or an eye for it and was able to like there's there's bits in here that are just legitimately funny that don't necessarily move the story forward but they're just funny and so it's like you need a little bit of that sweetness as you go through because there's a lot of sour purposely so with the character of what's going on with charlie that you get to have a little bit of fun along the way this feels very much if this was supposed to be updated into a feature you'd probably want that ratio of comedy to tragedy you know, which is not always something tonally that you get in these episodes where if it goes comedy, it goes so full tilt that you expect to hear like a horn honking every time a joke happens mm-hmm. or so much tragedy where it's so melodramatic that it's like, I'm done with this. There was like, for me, it was a fine balance, but mm-hmm. I mean, if people feel different about it, I mean, hopefully you can get, still get the meat of it, the story. So, because- so far, if there's been two episodes of this season that I'd say you, you need to go and watch if you've not watched them with us, it's this one. And, um, uh, he he's alive, you know? yes. Yeah. So so uh, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, so quick aside for the he's alive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Rob Zombie is uh, on Instagram. 
And he just recently posted on uh, Tuesday night that he has been revisiting all of of uh, Twilight Zone. Nice. And uh, he wanted to know everybody's favorite episode. So I went ahead and I put on there, he's alive. So I I, I, I felt like that is a, a good storytelling for yeah. like conversation at least. So if he's if he's doing interpretation of Twilight Zone, which is fine, does somebody else write the script for him? That's all I ask. You yeah, know, like no, no, I'm not I'm not depicting no, no, that. Uh, but, but no, he he has a vocabulary and a history and a knowledge, right? Uh, I will also say that someone posted recently a meme saying that Rob Zombie looks like someone put Jason Momoa in the microwave for like two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> like like <laughs> I, I, I don't, no, I, it's like I'm and they're not, not wrong. Boy. They're not. Wrong. I'm not. A, I'm not a fanboy of his no, movies. But, but no, but, but he loves. Like, um, I heard a conversation with him talking about with the Halloween movies. It's like, regardless how you feel about those movies, he has such a love of horror. Like, you could tell his like encyclopedic knowledge of horror. You know, um, he has a deep appreciation. Him and his brother Spider have a deep appreciation for was Spider. A family name. Uh, I I'm sure it's not, but. <laughs> Um, it's like you were named after your uncle Cecil Spider, <laughs> but it's like I I'm I'm going to be that guy who's going to fanboy the 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 old arts. Like he loves stuff like black and white film. He well, he loves White Zombie. That's where he took I, the yes, name. You know, yes, like, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I mean, he, his brother is like huge, huge fan of like old horror films as well. Like that's why he got Spider as his name. So. Um, but I'm super, I'm super excited that people like Rob Zombie is still talking about the Twilight Zone. Yeah. I mean, there was yeah. more than like a thousand hits on Good. his Instagram for that alone. Good, it's like like that. Keep like the relevance of the series, the the resonance of it keeps getting like wider and bigger and louder, right? And I I enjoy this journey that I've been on so far, and I'm so thankful that you're here with me because as much as um. You know, like as much as I was kind of dragging season four, just because I knew that's the one everyone kind of was like, eh. you know, we've, we've had some rough road, but this was a hidden gem. Like, it's like, this is why I, this is why I want to do this is because I never would have went out of my way to watch this if it wasn't the next episode in order. Cause if I was going to watch Twilight Zone, I'd be like, here's the, here's the 10 I want to watch, you know, and that's it. You know, I so. don't want to avoid anything. Like, especially if there's a, a, a big appreciation for it. Like I'm the kind of guy that listens to everybody's criticisms, but also listens to everybody's like, like happy, like aspects of like, I love this. Like, give it a whirl. Like, yeah, g- g- give me that. Like, if you really appreciate some other show, like I want to watch all of that stuff. I, I love Twilight Zone and I'm always going to love it, but I want something more. Like, I'm always looking for the next big thing that I'm going to like binge yeah no absolutely i'm always yeah, looking yeah. for that absolutely so all right um before we get on to where our next episode is let's just we we got to rate the twist because that's what we do here i'm gonna give the twist my twist is that charlie would actually find love and actually get it i'm gonna give it a four because i did not i didn't i hoped but i didn't i didn't expect it there was always that way i was waiting for the carpet pull to happen it didn't happen. So I'm going to give it a four because this is the one time where I'm like, please let this happen the way it's supposed to. And it did. So that's what I was excited about. And on the uh, other side of that, unfortunately, because of the title. And then as soon as I went, he they went to a museum. I was like, there's going to be a miniature like and he's going to fall in love with one of the characters. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Two. OK, fair. That's fair. 
I, like I believe in love. Terry doesn't. I get it. So it's fine. Oh, we get the no. hell out of here, dude. <laughs> He's just like, yeah, yeah, right there. You go. No, no, no. We the, the twist doesn't it doesn't dictate how we feel about the episode. The twist that, is yeah, Terry it, knows how to say f when, yeah, but not Russian names. We know that now. So anyway, so all right. Uh, before we get to the next episode, uh, you guys can find us on Facebook at Strange Highways Podcast. Uh, you can email us at Strange Highways Podcast. Find us wherever you you listen to your podcast. Rate and review us, whether that be Apple Podcasts, like Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher. Um, Hardy's, I don't know where you get your podcasts. Uh, Gabriel Brothers, that's a really local like clothing chain. It's just <laughs> like, called Gabe's now. Yeah, apparently. Gabe's. It's just Gabe's. Gabe's. You, you can go find your podcast and your three-legged sweatpants there. Whatever, find <laughs> rate review. Uh, real quick before we leave, I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you a quick Gabe story because uh, we're already, we're already running along. Growing up. Uh, I, I was poor, uh, and we would do like so in West Virginia, like we would actually qualify for something called clothing vouchers, where it wasn't cash money, but you get a voucher for like hundred bucks, and you go to a store, and you'd fill out line by line what you were buying, and then you'd bring it to the register, and they would then take it to the state and get their money for it, right? But okay. you could only use the voucher at one store, and if you went under a hundred, you didn't get like cash back, and if you went over a hundred, you just pay like whatever you owed. So oh, my okay. mom was meticulous with us three kids, you know, and so we would go very like so we go to Gabriel's because that's where you went because that's where you'd find like the cheapest stuff because Gabe's it didn't matter if something was good or not like in terms of like oh that's missing a sleeve sell it to Gabe's right. There was a thing for a while. I don't know if you recall, like this is probably a little before your time. Like every shirt would have like a mascot bursting through on the front. And then you see like their ass on the back. Like, so it'd be like yeah, bursting like through. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. There's always different sport teams. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember that. <laughs> there two things I remember about Gabriel brothers, like army, uh, which is like, you know, the, the football, like, you know, army football is a horse, like a mule. Yeah. So it's supposed to be like on the back. It was like, you know, the horse's ass and then bursting through the front was supposed to be the horse. Right. There was literally, I found a shirt there that put on the front was just the butt of the horse and then nothing on the back. I tried to convince my mom that I wanted that. She wouldn't buy it for me. And then for the baseball teams at that time, it was just a nondescript baseball player bursting through the front with a baseball glove and on the back would have these feet with cleats. And there was one shirt that literally, it was like a Yankee shirt that had cleats on the back and cleats on the front. <laughs> like I was like, can I have this? My mom would not buy me those misprinted shirts. <laughs> So, but it was a shirt. So I know. Why did it matter? I know. She's probably like, you know. It's supposed I, to be a Yankee I, I, shirt. Like, so I just, no, I, Paul. My mom was just like, why can't you just be normal like everybody else and just like go have a family and a child and work at a job for five years, you know? So anyway, <laughs> find us, rate, and review us, please. That'd be great. We'd appreciate it. <laughs> After all that, yeah, buy buy me a shirt with cleats on both sides. Buy me a normal shirt. Buy me a normal shirt. Um, so next episode, it is Printer's Devil. Uh, it is. Um, it's actually going to be season four, episode nine. nine. You know, we'll we'll see if I get that right. Then, uh, some rather special ingredients to a bizarre brew served up on next Twilight Zone: an oddball printing press, an editor with a uh, stringer from the lower regions, are just a few. We bring we bring you Robert Sterling, Patricia Crowley, and special guest star Burgess Meredith and Charles Beaumont's Printer's Devil. I may have missed some words in my typing of that. Burgess Meredith is coming back. It's his last appearance on the Twilight Zone. Yay. Well, for this series, he ends up being the narrator in the film. Like in the introducing the segments in the Twilight Zone, the movie. Is he calling anybody a bum? 
I don't know. We'll find out. I think he's the devil <laughs> in this printer's devil. This is this will be his fourth and last appearance in the Twilight Zone, the original series. So uh, it'll be fun to see him again. Um, yeah. So printer's devil next episode. All right. Well, I look forward to it either yeah. way. So yeah, um, that's going to do it for us this week. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, have a good week. Uh, be safe and don't just smush your face against glasses and um, museums or in general. It's probably not a, a safe thing to do right now. No. Wash your hands. mothers who try to keep their children with them all the time. Ask Myra. Pass the butter, please.